0: It's James Lindsay. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast, and we're going to go somewhere deep and crazy today. We were going to cover queer theory, but I'm not going to cover queer theory as queer theory. I'm not going to do some overarching introduction to it. In fact, this podcast is been something that I've been kind of sitting on or working on is a better way to put it, because I finally put my notes together and finished them today uh, for the better part of three months. And since it's like mid-March In in the new year here, Um, most of this year, I've been trying to figure out how to put this together. Uh, I didn't know how I wanted to communicate this. And so there's been a little bit of a struggle, but we're going to talk about queer theory as a form of postmodern Gnostic cult religion. Because I think that's the way we have to understand it. We have to understand that queer theory is a cult religion. In fact, it is based on Gnosticism and Hermeticism. If you've listened to the podcast if, uh, Gnosticism in the Modern West that I did recently, it's a couple hours long. It's not really easy. I go into Gnosticism, I talk about the word Gnosis and what Gnostic represents. I give four definitions for Gnostic, I explain why it's a complicated term and uh, complicated terminology. I give some explanation as to how Hegel and Marx, those some characters we're probably going to talk about here today, especially Hegel, I know for sure we're going to mention quite a bit, uh, retooled Gnosticism. The, the basic case I make is that in the Middle Ages, maybe starting as early as the 12th or 13th century, but certainly by the 15th century in Europe, there was a kind of what we would consider a New Age bloom, this New Age theosophy that we see you know, with all the spiritualism and you know, the consciousness and all of this, you know, mindfulness stuff that we see today, everything we think of as new age hippie spiritual stuff. Turns out there was a new age movement of a kind in the Middle Ages. And the new age movement was, in my opinion, rooted in Gnosticism and Hermeticism. I don't actually think that that's particularly controversial. Uh, It spread like kind of wildfire in certain circles, uh, especially elite circles throughout Europe. And um, my opinion is that uh, Rousseau gave the first, Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, in France, gave one of the first real modern articulations of this Gnostic belief. Hegel, who was an outright hermeticist in Germany about a generation later, picks it up following also from Kant, Immanuel Kant, who was... Also a big fan of Jean-Jacques Rousseau to the point where it's kind of tremendous. He had one, only one uh, decoration in his study, and it was a portrait of Rousseau. It was famous. I guess the guy was a little OCD, a little strange. That you, could, It was said that you could actually set your watch, set your clock by Emmanuel uh, Kant's walks. He would take these walks, and the one time he ever missed... His walk is when he had his nose buried deep in Rousseau. He was so captivated and interested in this. And, you know, there's a lot of deep stuff we could get into philosophically there. But the point is that these people aren't philosophers. They're Gnostics. They're wizards. They are esotericists. They, in fact, are not part of the Enlightenment tradition, but they are a reaction to it. They're not the faith-based religious reaction that we normally think of. They are, in fact, a Gnostic or a mystical reaction. Uh, I call this the romantic reaction because, in my opinion, Rousseau was one of the first main characters to articulate it. But I don't want to, I mean, Rousseau's really romanticism and really kind of at the center of this queer Gnostic thing. But I'm just pointing you toward that podcast. If you haven't listened to it, you probably should, not necessarily before you listen to this one. I know it's a lot more time, Uh, but it's really important to realize what we're dealing with. and. Some of what I say may not make a lot of sense unless you understand how this new age movement was codified and modernized. And I mean that with like a kind of a capital M, brought into the modern era and relocated into social politics outside of old school spiritual realms uh, in order to understand what I'm going to talk about here and thus to understand queer theory. So, if you want to understand queer theory, we have to understand esoteric belief. We also have to understand how esoteric belief was transformed in the modern era and how then that evolved into the postmodern era because queer theory is by far the most postmodern of the uh, branches of what we might call woke theory. And uh, so I have extensive notes. I'm not going to ramble and preamble here because I want to get through these and not have this be super long, but this is going to be a different take on queer theory than probably anybody's ever heard. I'm going to frame it as queer Gnosticism. I'm going to give the same disclaimer I gave in that other podcast that Gnostic means several things, at least four. I am not talking about the first century Christian cults. Those are Gnostic as well in a broader sense. I'm talking about that broader sense. And the broader sense of Gnostic includes another thing called Hermeticism. Hermeticism is a ancient religion. Sometimes it's uh, said to arise out of Uh, Egypt. Sometimes it's said to arise out of er what we would call Iraq now, Babylonian. Sometimes it's said to be uh, Indian. I don't know where its actual origins are. It's credited. Hermetic refers to Hermes. Um, That's credited to the Egyptian god, who is the equivalent of Hermes. That's spelled, like you would pronounce it, I've been told, and I have not Checked this, so I'm going to say both. One of them's right, one of them's wrong. I don't know which, but there's an Egyptian god that you would think is pronounced Toth, T H O T H. I'm told that the Egyptian pronunciation of this may be Tehote. I don't know if that's true or not, but at any rate, it's spelled T H O T H. And this is the Ibis headed or Ibis headed, I guess that's the bird, um, messenger god. Uh, And Hermes, the messenger god, or Mercury which is f- also the basis for the name of the alchemy-based metal, upon which alchemy has a lot to do with Hermeticism, um, that we see in Greek and Roman mythology, and kind of parallel. So, But I don't want to ramble. further. Without further ado, you need to hear those terms, though Gnosticism, Hermeticism, that Gnostic doesn't just mean the narrow definition of the handful of Christian cults in the first century. They got put down by, Saint Irenaeus and others. Um, it's got a broader definition, and we're going to kind of get into that. But I want to start with a quote uh, from our favorite academic paper of all time, the Drag Queen Story Hour paper that was called Drag Pedagogy. Not to give you more homework to do, but if you want to know what I'm talking about with regard to that paper... I think you need to go listen to uh, uh, the the, the podcast here on the New Discourses podcast where I recorded the entirety of that and contextualized it for you, uh, which was called um, Groomer Schools 4. You can also look up on Twitter if you want. I did a mega thread back last year around Christmas, and I called it uh, Groomer School Story Hour. No, Groomer Clown Story Hour. So you can look up Groomer Clown Story Hour on Twitter. Um, in the search function, and probably find my mega thread going through virtually every line of the paper and decoding it for you in even greater depth and detail than I did in the podcast. But I'm going to pull this quote. So I'm not actually quoting directly from the paper. I'm actually quoting the paper quoting somebody else to to open this up. So the paper introduces this book called a 2009 book called Cruising Utopia, which was written by Jose Esteban Munoz, uh, a queer theorist, obviously a lat. A Latin uh, crit queer theorist. And um, this is the quote that they stick in the Drag Queen Story Hour paper from Munoz Queerness is not yet here. Queerness is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. We have never been queer. Yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. The future is queerness's domain. Queerness is a structuring and educated mode of desiring that allows us to see and feel beyond the quagmire of the present. The here and now is a prison house. That's apparently from page one of this book, Cruising Utopia, and I... Insist it is not possible to understand that paragraph that I just read with no added varnish or interpretation. It is not possible to understand that paragraph without understanding that what you're listening to is an expression of queer Gnosticism. This is Gnostic religion, and I mean that both Hermetic and Gnostic at the same time. One of the things that I actually credit Hegel and Marx kind of in tandem with doing, is fusing Hermeticism and Gnosticism together, calling them science and hiding them within politics, economics, and and social theory. So Hermeticism and Gnosticism, as I mentioned before, are not the same thing. They are two different religions, but they both rely—they're both Gnostic with a lowercase g in the fact that they both rely on esoteric, hidden knowledge, usually knowledge of yourself, self-knowledge, that has the ability to to, to lead you into salvation from your uh, your fallen state in the world, we'll put it for the moment. And I assert, especially when we hear that here and now is a prison house. For those of you who have listened to the materials that I've put out so far or read any of the materials i put out so far about Gnosticism, you understand that once you see that invocation of the prison— you probably can bet you're dealing with Gnosticism. And the reason is because uh, Gnosticism as a broad religious architecture, again, not the specific Christian cults of the first and second centuries, believes that the universe being everything, the world, is a prison, that it was constructed by this character called the Demiurge, who is the product of sinful thought by uh, Sophia, the, the the feminine aspect of the mind of God. And there's a whole mythology behind that that we don't have to get into. But the Demiurge is what's called Yahweh or God in the Bible, in the story of Genesis. He is the creator. He makes the heavens and earth and so on. But it's actually he's making it as a prison for the spiritual being called man. So the world, the universe, being itself and Us, our bodies, are a prison for our souls. And Gnosticism believes that if you obtain this knowledge about yourself, that you are actually in no way different than the deity, and in no way separate from the deity, locked away in your mundane body, trapped in the mundane world of suffering as we are. If you receive this knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil as it were, then you can free yourself from the prison of being. Maybe not until you die, maybe only spiritually, but you can actually escape the prison house of the here and now. And so when we hear that the here and now is a prison house in this statement, we know that we're dealing with queer Gnosticism. That's open and shut. Case closed. Podcast over. Just kidding. When we see that it is a educated mode of desiring that allows us to see and feel beyond the quagmire of the present. And he talks about being rooted in the progress of history into potentialities in the future. We know we're dealing with Hegelian Hermeticism, the transformation of history from what it was as a mystical scientific pursuit, scientific in the way that Plato meant Scientia, into what it's supposed to be. And so we know that this is a Gnostic and Hermetic expression. But what I read is not comprehensible. Queer theory is not comprehensible without understanding that it's queer Gnosticism. So, like I said, I had a very hard time trying to figure out how to communicate this to you. I've had a general idea of the kind of overview points that I want to make to make this this story. In fact, I've said them. My poor coworkers and friends. Some of these people have heard this on the phone from me so many times. I can do it in about 10 minutes and then podcast over, but I want to deliver it with evidence. I want to bring the literature like I usually do to light for you to really make the case of just how deep this goes. And I kept trying and I kept getting bogged down. I had the podcaster's equivalent of writer's block and it got more and more convoluted. It got hard to follow. I didn't know what to do. I scrapped a bunch of attempts. Um, what I finally decided is something that I wouldn't normally do. I'm not going to try to come up with some grand arching flow like a great podcast would be, or like a book, or maybe this is the right structure, I don't know. But I'm going to give you the big overview first, maybe not quite in a 10-minute condensed form where I'm used to talking to people who kind of know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to give you that condensed overview, and then I'm going to give you Pieces of the literature, deep pieces of literature, so you can see just how actually deep this claim goes that queer theory is queer Gnosticism. In other words, queer theory is the doctrine of a Gnostic cult rooted in sex and sexuality, which they are inducing your children into, initiating your children into in school under banners like comprehensive sexuality education and drag queen story hour and gender education. Um. So the, the simple case is coming first, then we're going to go back to the literature to make it really clear just how deeply right I am about this claim that sounds preposterous that the internet will probably make fun of me for. You get used to that, by the way. So like I said, what this means, and I need you to keep this in mind as we go, queer theory First of all, by the way, you've heard of critical race theory. Everybody's heard of critical race theory now. It has a cousin. That cousin is queer theory. Critical race theory deals with race. Queer theory deals with sex, gender, and sexuality primarily, but it can touch virtually anything. And it's the cousin. In fact, it's the exact parallel of critical race theory, but because they deal with different subjects and they deal with them in different ways, they aren't identical. Um... They are also used in tandem. If you listen to Groomer Schools 3, you'll understand that critical race theory is actually used with our children to set up Maoist-style identity politics to push our children into feeling bad about something they can't change, which is their skin color and race, and then to push them into a way out of that through queer identification. So queer theory is, A, much more dangerous than critical race theory. Much more destructive, as we'll hear. And B, it is also an intended destination. Critical race theory is a setup to get kids to fall into queer theory. As I said with Charlie Kirk a year and a half ago on stage in front of thousands of young people, I think it was at America Fest 2021. I said uh, that queer theory opens the gates to hell. He wanted to talk about CRT, and I just cut him off. And I said, Charlie, listen, we always want to talk about CRT. We haven't talked about queer theory. You have to understand queer theory opens the gates to hell. It's a million times worse. I don't know what the real number is, maybe 10 times worse than CRT. It's much worse. And it is the doctrine for a cult, a very dangerous cult that's consuming our children and consuming our society. It's almost wholly destructive. It's almost... It, it, it's just consuming and dissolving like an acid or a fire. It, it, it doesn't build. It, it only deconstructs and tears apart. It de- tears apart minds. It tears apart families. It tears apart um, religions. Uh, it's, it's truly a consuming demon. Um, now, in a sense, all of this is true of its kind of parent philosophy, which is largely Marxism. And queer theory is a part of Marxism. I did a short podcast a while back, or a couple of them actually, indicating that queer theory is queer Marxism. And I made the case there. Uh, but it's in a sense, it's far more tangibly true and importantly true in queer theory that it is a destructive cult. So that means that teaching queer theory or teaching gender theory or what we call gender ideology in schools is not just religious instruction. It is Cult, which it is, by the way, it is religious instruction. It is no, in no way permissible under the First Amendment when you understand what queer theory actually is. But it's not just religious instruction. It is cult induction. It is using pieces of cult initiation to induce our children into a very destructive, very dangerous, very toxic Gnostic religious cult. You must understand what this is about. So in fact, Much of what happens in queer education is, in fact, cult initiation. We talked about that in the podcast I called Groomer Schools 2. So these are pieces of this puzzle have been coming out for a long time. Um, Not that I was like drip feeding you. I'm figuring it out for myself. I'm kind of drip feeding myself and giving you the best of what I have as I go. So it's cult initiation. But the thing is, they know it's cult initiation. Their Relentless Crusade Against Childhood Innocence, which we discussed before, particularly that whole podcast, is about their crusade against childhood innocence. Groomer Schools 2 in the New Discourses podcast, you can go look it up. That's part of a transformational pair of opposites, what they call a binary, that's explicitly described in their literature as innocence versus initiation. And so the second you realize that they position childhood innocence against childhood initiation, you have to ask the question, initiation into what? And the answer is a cult, their cult, queer Gnosticism. So it's a cult. They know it's a cult. They know they are in, they are initiating kids. They are doing initiatory acts to bring children into this way of this cult perspective of viewing the world. And they're doing it very intentionally with very sophisticated techniques. And in that podcast and, and groomer schools too, I talked about how they are directly targeting, intentionally targeting the early childhood education literature and the developmental psychology, childhood developmental psychology literature with queer theory, because neither of those support the idea that you should be initiating kids into a sex cult or a sex-based cult. Child developmental psychology would throw queer theory in a river of fire immediately. But now they're queering that because it's run by academics who have absolutely no resistance to any of this because they're weak, because they take their ideas too seriously, etc., Childhood developmental psychology would, would burn queer theory to the ground. So what they're doing is colonizing the psychology so that when you show up to court and you say, you're harming my children, this is negligent and deliberate harm against my children, and you get an expert to testify to that, they have experts who are childhood developmental psychology experts under the queer umbrella who refute you and say, no, no, that's all the old uh, heteronormative, patriarchal or whatever view of childhood developmental psychology. We have the new view, which is uh, takes into account the insights of queer theory. In other words, they're subsuming the science of childhood development and early childhood education, which is not a science, into the envelope of their cult interpretation. When I said Plato's idea of science with the scientia, that's what I mean. What we think of as science, the scientific method, methods and so on, is what Plato would have described under the term dianoia, which is technical knowledge that informs being able to do things, technical skill, which he called techni. And that's a lower form of knowledge and activity, but a higher form is the kind of reasoned understanding, the philosophy that glues it all together, and that's episteme, that's higher knowing, um, where we get our word epistemology, which is the science of knowing. And the episteme gets to contour the dianoia. Now, Hegel imported this directly and called it for stand, which is a German word for understanding. And that's the lower level. That's just scientific knowledge or traditional theory, as Max Horkheimer called it. And there's a higher level. Hegel called it Vernunft, which gets translated as reason and what Horkheimer called critical theory, which brings in the critical dimension of seeing through the biases and assumptions of existing reality and bringing in a moral dimension and a purposed direction to our analysis. And it has to override and contour the results of the lower level. So it doesn't matter if we call it, you know, platonic scientia or Hegelian system der Wissenschaft or traditional and critical theory. It doesn't matter which one we call it. It's the same thing, is that they think that they ha- their cult interpretation gets to override and subsume actually understanding the world, including childhood developmental psychology. Well, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Well, partly because you're in a cult and Think that your cult must inform everything, just like we heard from Mao in the podcast I did about Mao recently, where he said, yeah, the sciences and the arts have to have freedom to explore other ideas. But what science or what art could disagree with socialism? Because socialism is Gnostic. It's Gnosis. Socialism is Gnosis. And so it must subsume the sciences and the arts. And the way it does it is that technique I've called, which you can look this up too. I know it gets hard to follow me, but there's so many pieces to this. It's so, it would take 10 hours to do every podcast to explain all this. There's a thing called I call dialectical inversion where what they basically assert is... Uh, that kind of everything is on the same playing, ground, playing field there. What you do is science. What I do is science. What you do is, is politics. What I do is politics. Everybody's doing the kind of the same thing. And so this is how they subsume these things. They say, well, that thing you're doing, this is the Gnostic idea, by the way. This is the Gnostic grift, because Gnosticism is a parasite, and it latches on to other belief systems, whether it's science, whether it's philosophy, whether it's religion. That's how you end up getting Gnostic Christian cults. It latches on. That's how you get mystical Jewish cults. It latches on, and it uses the language and the garb of those things to promote its esoteric crazy beliefs. In fact, that's what esoteric means. Esoteric means the hidden meanings. The religion itself has an exoteric meaning, but they know the secret esoteric meaning. That's why they use double language. And so what they do is they say, yeah, you know all about your Christianity or your science of child development or whatever, but you only know as much as they want you to know. We know the real secrets come with us, and that's how they suck you in. And again, like I said, this is true across all of woke theory. It's true across socialism under Mao or Lenin or Marx himself, but it's much more tangibly and dangerously true within queer theory which is the doctrine of a cult called queer, I should call queer Gnosticism, or I am calling queer Gnosticism. Now, this is important when I say how dangerous it is. Let me give you a flavor of this, because if we're talking about initiation, we should have some sense of what initiation rights into sexual-based cults might look like. And so there are reasons to connect this that are not arbitrary um, to what were known in in the pre-Socratic Greek Period, as the Eleusinian Mysteries. They're a little watered down. They're clownified into drag queens and so on. But the Eleusinian Mysteries—I think I'm saying that right. Maybe I'm not. Um, this was a a cult ritual that was done, and it rendered one a mysti, m y s t a i, a which is a kind of Gnostic wizard. Um, when you went through the mystery. So you learn the secret mysteries of, of, of everything, of life, of, of how the world really works. And the reason it kind of connects is actually that um, studying what Hegel called philosophy, which philosophy for him is in fact sorcery. It is in fact hermeticism. He's quite clear on what he means. Makes you a misty. But if you look up the word misty, it, it directly points you to these mystery cults. These mystery cults, specifically, what rendered you a mystic, a mystic, is having passed through the Eleusinian mysteries, at least in pre-Socratic Greek. And what is the initiation? Well, it's a pagan rite. And what does it do? It celebrates, or allegedly celebrates, the rescue of Demeter from Hades. So, Demeter is the daughter of Persephone, is kidnapped and taken to the underworld by Hades and is held there. So there's never going to be spring again. And lo and behold, somebody goes into the underworld and rescues Demeter from Hades. And they strike a deal. They strike a bargain, a 50-50, a dialectical synthesis, if you will. And then Demeter will spend the winter or half the year underground. It's actually, I think, four months and three months, or four months and eight months, is how is how the deal works. And when she's in Hades, you have winter. And when she gets to come back out, you have spring and summer. And who rescues Demeter from the underworld? Hermes. It's Hermetic. And so this is a rite that celebrates the fertility of spring, the new life returning from death, which is what the underworld's about. And so the rescue of spring and the rescue of new life from death, and of course fertility. Well, sex has something to do with this. So the rites conveying these mysteries were almost certainly, not that I know for sure, just guessing based on what descriptions I have seen and what things I have read, and knowing a thing or two about the Greeks. These these, these rites were very likely wildly perverse orgies. And the mysteries themselves were almost certainly sexual mysteries that were rooted in pederasty, that's diddling kids in plain English, and other forms of sexual perversion, often and particularly involving between adults and children. I don't know that for absolute certain about the Eleusinian mysteries, but I do know that this was a thing that was important in some of these higher uh, cultic circles within Greek life. It was a thing. It's discussed throughout Plato if you need to understand, if you can understand what's being written about there. And so both adults and children were participating in initiations of this kind, if not specifically the uh, initiations into the Eleusinian Mysteries. So the idea is that innocence is going to be removed, initiation into adulthood is brought for the children, and innocence about the world is removed, and initiation into the cult is brought to the new adult participants. And why would the cult have initiation into the—why why would initiation for adults into the cult— have to involve something about the the correct love of boys. And the reason is because blackmail, more or less, and now we see what Epstein Island might be about. And so this is more than likely what the deal was. You go through this initiation rite, they tell you the secrets of the world, the higher class people get to have access to the true love of boys, and in the process they get compromise on you, so that you now are controlled by the elites in society. They don't let anybody into those elite circles who isn't controlled one way or another. Commitment might not even be enough. You need blackmail, and that's a good way to get it because everybody dislikes it. It's in Plato that the people don't like it. The people know it's evil. So anyway, you get initiated into the cult by compromising yourself and proving that you're willing to. And then you get to have the benefits. How do do these cults work? Do they really have magic powers? No. They have highly placed people and well-placed people who make things happen. That's how they work. You need something fixed, like say you needed a building permit or whatever, and one of your guys works in City Hall, he doesn't have to actually approve your paperwork, he can just rubber stamp it. But he doesn't do that for anybody else. And now it's like magic is happening. Stuff just works for you. It's a secret of attraction. It's called corruption. Of course, the secret or the law of attraction is Hermetic, a New Age Hermetic goofball stuff. Except it's not. That's what it, how it really works. And so this is even hinted at, though. When I say it's all dirty like this, like I know that I don't know a ton about the Eleusinian Mysteries. I'm confessing that. I'm certain these Dionysian type sex orgies were occurring. I'm certain that children were involved. Certain that Plato knew about it and wrote about it, um, because. It's hinted at in some of the neo-Marxist literature, which is where I ended up starting to look at this. The critical theory literature. I was talking about Max Horkheimer and critical theory a minute ago. Well, now I'm talking about Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse, uh, near the end, it's on page 211 in the kind of standard copy of uh, Herbert Marcuse's 1955 book, Eros and Civilization. Eros is a Greek god of eroticism or love, right? So Eros and Civilization, uh, near the end. He actually alludes to the Platonic discourse on the Symposium. And just as an interesting side note to this, by the way, my personal digital copy, I never talked about this before, I guess, last November, because I didn't realize, I didn't know. My digital copy of Eros and Civilization that I got doesn't have the relevant parts of this page. They've been deleted from the, from the digital copy, but it's exactly the same book with the exact same pagination, the exact same page numbers. Otherwise there's just one page that's shorter in how long it is because it's missing the relevant sentences from the paragraph. Uh, my, so they, they censored it in the copy, the digital copy that I ended up being able to download. Um, so my copy of Eros and Civilization is missing these parts, but I ended up catching the print copy and then I found a digital copy that that actually has them. Uh, so it's very interesting that my copy censors that, but here's what Marcuse writes to read a paragraph of his from near the end of Eros and Civilization, where he's talking about the lessons the symposium teaches. He says, still... The symposium contains the clearest celebration of the sexual origin and substance of the spiritual relations. According to Diotima, Eros uh, drives the desire for one beautiful body to another, and finally to all beautiful bodies, for, quote, the beauty of one body is akin to the beauty of another, end quote. And it would be foolish, quote, not to recognize that the beauty in every body is one and the same. end quote. Can you hear the hermeticism? If you can fall in love with or be sexually attracted to one body or channel your sexual attraction into love for one body, then it can expand and you find beauty in everybody. Very removing distinctions, very removing particulars. Very hermetic magic. And he says, out of this truly polymorphous sexuality, so sexual energy gives you the idea that you can love everybody, and if you love everybody, you want to be a communist, because you love everybody now, right? Out of this truly polymorphous sexuality arises the desire for that which animates the desired body, the psyche and its various manifestations. There is an unbroken ascent in erotic fulfillment from the corporeal love of one to that of the others. Do you see this? So he's saying when you get hot and bothered, when you get horny for somebody, and it's horny time, and you seek erotic fulfillment through corporeal bodily love of one, that leads to the other forms of love. So if you Get hot and bothered for somebody, you'll fall in love with them, and if you fall in love with them, that makes you love everything. And all the other types of love the Greeks identified five follow from it. But he lists three. So there's an unbroken ascent. So these these are in an order. They increase in their, their spiritual significance. And the erotic fulfillment from the corporeal love of one, the eros, the erotic desire for one that turns into physical consummation, to that of the others, the other loves. To the love of beautiful work and play. Epithodumata, or I don't... I'm There's no way I'm going to say these Greek things right. Just deal with me. And ultimately, to the love of beautiful knowledge. Kala Mathematica, or Mathematica. No, I added a C. Kala Mathematica. Sorry, I went straight into Mathematica from my old com- computer math days. So, if you get hot and bothered for somebody, and you consummate it, and you fall in love with them, that leads you to love your life and beautiful work and play within your life. And then that leads to loving beautiful knowledge and truth. See? So it all starts with horny time. And next thing you know, you love beautiful knowledge. Kala Mathemata. And then he goes on. He says, the road to, quote, higher culture leads through the true love of boys. And what he says, the Greek he gives is orthos pederastine, correct pederasty. Orthos pederastine. There is no ambiguity in what's meant there. The true love of boys, orthos, like orthodox, I guess, it's to correct, right? Orthogonal. It means right, correct, orthodox. Orthos, correct doctrine, orthodox, right? Orthos, pederastian, correct pederasty. The road to higher culture leads through the true love of boys. Literally, correct pederasty from the Greek. That's what he says the lesson of symposium, the clearest celebration of the sexual origin and substance of the spiritual relations is. Spiritual, quote, procreation, he says, is just as much the work of eros as is corporeal procreation. So now we're going to have spiritual procreation as a result of this, right? And the right and true order of the polis, of the city, of the society, of civilization, Eros and civilization. He's telling you, by the way, the key to how to read this entire book as a coded document. Eros and civilization is built off of this idea. The right and true order of the polis is just as much an erotic one as the right and true Order of love. The culture building power of Eros is non repressive sublimation. Sexuality is neither deflected from nor blocked in its objective. Rather, in attaining its objective, it transcends it to others, searching for fuller gratification. So that's pretty sick. So that's actually pointing right in the direction of queer theory, and you also see that it ties directly into this idea of these pre Socratic. Sex cults. Now, Drag Queen Story Hour, which sells itself directly into our schools and is applauded by Democratic politicians all over the country. They brag about going to these things on their social media, they encourage these things in their districts, is in its own words, quote, a preparatory introduction to alternate modes of kinship, and that it is a preparatory introduction that instructs in quote living queerly as such. In other words, Drag Queen Story Hour, which is in our schools and predating on our children and celebrated by democratic politicians all over the country, is this cult initiation 2022 and 3 style. Actually, 2015 to present style. That's when it started. Drag Queen Story Hour is this initiation process into this erotic structure of the polis that Marcuse is talking about. It's just taking on what Marcuse called in the in, in essay on civil on liberation in nineteen sixty nine the clownish forms that irritate the establishment it's 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 eros doing drag it's eros being a clown and it's profoundly informed by queer pedagogy, like we said in fact it's published as a piece of queer pedagogy queer educational theory, and that's rooted in queer theory which I assert is the cult doctrine for which this practice is the initiation pathway or one initiation pathway. Uh, the stuff we see in, in, in entertainment also is another. The scary people we see on the internet and social media is another. Um, frankly, Dylan Mulvaney having a big platform now that he transitioned or whatever is another. We also know... Again, referring back to Groomer Schools 2, like I said, that overcoming childhood innocence through such preparatory introductions, as they call them, that is, initiations, as other queer theorists, like we'll talk about by the end, Eve Kosofsky, uh, Sedgwick in particular, they make this abundantly clear. um, Overcoming childhood innocence through such preparatory introductions or initiations is so important that the entire fields of early childhood education and childhood developmental psychology have to be queered in order to facilitate it. They have to be brought into line with the cult doctrine of queer Gnosticism because they would otherwise reject it, throw it in a lake of fire, and they would do so with incredible force. This wouldn't be happening. The legal consequences would be enormous. This would be slapped down by law enforcement. This would be shut down by judges, court orders. People that are implementing it would be going to jail for child abuse, for negligent harm, deliberate harm, sexual, all kinds of crimes. But they've brought this other stuff under the cult view of queer theory. Queer Gnosticism is now infecting the thoughts of our judges, of our law enforcement, of our politicians, of our lawmakers. And they don't want to be homophobic or contribute to transphobia or any of these kinds of things. Because everybody knows, just like back in Plato's day, that this is not good. That this is not okay. It is actually rooted in everything, literally everything, moral good, reasonable, evidentiary, sensible, etc. And so you have to queer those things so that they can have fake experts coming out and pontificating and confusing with their cult doctrine so that they can advance and continue their cult initiations, which involve using our children. But lest you think I'm overstating this, I'll put it in their own words from the Drag Queen Story Hour paper just to remind you. In this article, we explore the pedagogical contributions of a program called Drag Queen Story Hour as a form of queer imagining in an early childhood context. These are the first sentences, by the way, of the paper. This is the abstract. This is their own summary of it. Through this program drag artists have channeled their penchant sorry this is the first paragraph it's not the the abstract through this program drag artists have channeled their penchant for playfully quote reading each other into filth that's a pun but it's also very obviously that they are reading you into filth they are initiating into filth right it's clearly a, an initiation into a worldview Drag artists have channeled their penchant for playfully reading each other into filth into different forms of literacy, promoting storytelling as integral to queer and trans communities, as well as positioning queer and trans cultural forms as valuable components of early childhood education. See, that's them queering early childhood education. They're trying to make it seem like experts believe and agree that these things, these Queer and trans-cultural forms are valuable components of early childhood education. That's so that the experts, when they show up to court, will confuse and befuddle the judges who would normally be shutting this down with tremendous prejudice. We are guided by the following question, they tell us. What, and this is all in italics, the whole question, it's in italics. What might Drag Queen Story Hour offer educators as a way of bringing queer ways of knowing and being into the education of young children? They then go on to say, ultimately, the authors propose that drag pedagogy, which is what they call what they're doing, provides a performative approach to queer pedagogy that is not simply about LGBT lives. In fact, it's barely about them at all. It uses them, but it's not about them. But in a, all in italics, again, living queerly. So you're introducing children into an entirely new way of living. That way is queerly living and Drag Queen Story Hour is a preparatory introduction to that because it's a cult initiation. More specifically, on initiation, they say, We believe that Drag Queen Story Hours, this is the words that they used. We believe that Drag Queen Story Hour offers an invitation toward deeper public engagement with queer cultural production, particularly for young children and their families. It may be that Drag Queen Story Hour is, quote, family friendly in the sense that it is accessible and inviting to families with children. But it is less a sanitizing force than it is a preparatory introduction to alternate modes of kinship. Here, Dry Queen Story Hour is, quote, family-friendly in the sense of, quote, family. As an old-school queer code to identify and connect with other queers on the street. So as I said... They're using coded language, that's a cult tactic, to say one thing and mean another so that they can set up an opportunity for a preparatory introduction, which is an initiation that overcomes childhood innocence because initiation and innocence are in a binary, intentioned opposition with one another under queer theory that has to be resolved. And they're doing that with your children and calling it family friendly to trick you. That's what's going on. It's a cult initiation. So, thusly introduced, we've only got through the introduction. Let me make the big, we haven't even done the big picture case yet that I said I was going to start with. That's the introduction. Let me make the big picture case now that queer theory is queer Gnosticism, and then we're going to turn around and look at how the theorists make this identification go very deep. I'm going to try to be somewhat quick with this part, though. It's not superficial, though. It's very deep, as you're going to hear. It's not like, queer theory is not like a Gnostic cult into whatever they mean by the word queerness, which we'll discuss. It is a Gnostic cult where the gnosis means knowing what it means to be and live queerly. I guess be queer and live queerly is grammatically correct. So queer theory is queer Gnosticism. Technically, it's queer Marxism, but Marxism is a peculiar form of Gnosticism. In fact, it's modern Gnosticism. Queer theory takes it postmodern, so it's really a form of postmodern Gnosticism. The basic idea of queer theory as a Marxist theory is that there are certain people who get to call themselves normal. They get to define what it means to be normal, especially with regard to sex and sexuality, also gender. They get to define the terms of normal sex, gender, sexuality, sometimes fat, ability, etc., draw off of this and other things. Okay? So there's a peculiar kind of cultural property that certain people have access to for reasons that don't seem clear that they're granting themselves access to. And then they created, it's called normalcy, being normal. And they then create a a definition of normal that means themselves so that they can gatekeep other people out of it. So that creates a two-tiered society of the normals and the abnormals. The normals are the ones who have the cultural power. The normals are the one who get to decide what counts as normal. And they use that to fence out and exclude the people they call abnormal. That sets up a conflict in society, a stratification and conflict in society. And so the people excluded from that have the opportunity to awaken to a queer consciousness of what it means to be excluded by being considered abnormal. This is the same as the proletariat gets to be uh, have the opportunity of being awakened by what it means to be exploited as a worker and alienated from the product that they produce in Marxism. So rather than capital being the form of bourgeois cultural property that has to be destroyed and, or abolished in order to achieve communism, you now have normalcy being destroyed the people who have the means of production under communism, that those the bourgeoisie, the, the, their means of production have to be stolen from them. They have to be seized. We're going to seize the means of production. Everybody thinks that means factories and stuff. But Marx believed that the human and society are downstream from economics. So if you seize the means of economic production, you seize the means of human production. You seize the means of societal production. And so you're actually seizing the means of human and societal production through economics. It's a very important distinction people need to understand. Well, here, the abnormals, the queers, as it were, have to figure out a way to seize the means of production of what it means to be normal. But it's a little more complicated than that. It's not factories. It's cultural. And it's extremely entrenched. And it's obviously really rooted in biology. So they're not going to succeed at that. So instead, what they do is they dissolve it. They dissolve it constantly. And that's the basic idea of queer theory. It is a, it's acidic, um, deconstructive assault on the concept of normal that it proceeds along the ideas of a Marxist conflict theory where the special form of bourgeois private property that has to be abolished so that the means of cultural prediction can be stolen from the people who currently hold it are uh, the people who call themselves normal, that Property is normalcy. That has to be normativity. It has to be stolen from them. It has to be abolished. And the queers doing queer activism, meaning, and we're going to hear how technical the word queer is, I'm not using it as a slur for gay people. It's nothing like that. Um, it's a political identification. It, it's the same as being class conscious. <laughs> Frankly, um, they have to be able to abolish normalcy and seize the means of production of what it means to be normal and acceptable in society from the people who are doing that. Now, in Gnosticism, in Marxism as a form of Gnosticism, what you have to understand is that the means of production are the artisanal, the artisan, the artisanal means of producing society. You're producing society. You're producing man through economic structures, through economic tools. So in other words, in Gnostic language, the people who control the means of production are like what's called the Demiurge. In Gnosticism, which I guess I have to summarize a little bit, the Demiurge is the evil demon that actually creates the world and does so to imprison people to his own benefit. We have to keep them from eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil because then they'll be like us. Like the gods, so we're going to lock them out of that. And if they violate it, we're going to kick them out of Eden. We're going to lock them in a world of suffering. We're going to imprison them away from their true nature, which is as gods. We don't want them to awaken to the fact that they are all, human beings are already as gods. That's what the demiurge does. So it is demiurge comes from the Greek demiurgos, which means artisan, builder, person in control of the means of production. So here. In Marxism, you have a Gnostic framework that the proletariat is excluded from the means of production, from demiurgic power. The demiurge is the bourgeoisie, and it is controlling everybody and setting the terms of society to produce society to produce man through things called like material determinism. And what has to happen is the dialectical materialism has to wake up in the class-conscious proletariat to overthrow the whole system. They have to become Gnostic. They have to adopt socialist consciousness. They have to get socialism as their gnosis, their salvific true self-knowledge, that they, in fact, are oppressed historical agents who have the power to transform history if they just get together in solidarity, class-solidarity and seize the means of production. In other words, become the demiurge themselves so that they can unmake the prison of being bit by bit. And it's exactly the same in queer theory. The exact same thing, but the property is no longer the material means of production. It is the means of cultural production and social production around the word normal. Who gets to decide what's normal? Now, Marxism is not purely Gnostic. Marx was very Gnostic, more Gnostic than Hegel in the kind of formal Gnostic sense. Hegel was a hermeticist, though, and Marx incorporated Hegel's dialectic into his dialectical materialism. And so what you end up with is between Hegel and Marx is a blend of Gnostic and hermetic principles. The way that I tend to phrase this is that Gnosticism is the motivation in Marxism. And Hermeticism is the means. So when I say about modern Gnosticism, which applies to queer theory as postmodern Gnosticism, I mean that the Gnostic impulse that we're imprisoned in the the, the universe of being, the being itself, is the motivation to act. It is the source of the salvific self-knowledge it can liberate you. But the mechanism by which you do it is the hermetic transformational process, the dialectic, as laid down by Hegel and appropriated by Marx. Aufheben, which is to abolish, but yet to keep and to see from a higher perspective. The dialectical sublation which is often phrased transformation. It's achieved through the clash of opposites, of intrinsic opposites, and thus their synthesis, where you remove the distinctions between things that seem to be different, or that are different, or that are fully distinct, good and evil. No, no, they're two sides of the same coin, man and woman. No, no, they're two sides of the same coin. You just aren't understanding from a higher perspective. That's the idea. And in the process, you obliterate good and evil and everything becomes relative. And you obliterate man and woman and everything becomes gender fluid and ambiguous. That's the idea. So Gnosticism is the motivation. They feel imprisoned in their very existence. But Hermeticism is the means. And what they're actually doing is blending those because the mechanism that they're using is Hermetic principles to seize the power of the Demiurge, which is the power to imprison and make suffer those who you are over or that you control. But the mechanism by which they get there is through removing distinctions. And that's the hermetic part, that distinctions are an illusion. We'll come back and talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Let me finish up a little bit more about Gnosticism. Because we've talked, but I point you again to the podcast that I did before because we talked about Gnosticism and haven't talked about Hermeticism yet. But Gnosticism has this evil creator, demon. Called the demiurge, which means the artisan. The demiurge is actually a demon. The snake in Genesis, according to the Gnostics, the serpent, which is Satan, is telling the truth and revealing the fact that the character called God in Genesis is this demon that's created the world as a prison for the holy spiritual man. In queer theory, it's that normal is the demiurge. In Marxism, it's that bourgeois is the demiurge. In CRT, for example, it's that whiteness is the form of property that creates a white supremacist demiurge in white Western culture. Um, once you kind of understand this, though, so the contours, this is the big picture part, the contours of queer theory as a Gnostic theory become really queer, clear, queer. Ha, 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 they become really clear really quickly. You're trapped in a body. You were born in a body But you didn't get to pick your body. You're trapped in a body which is like a prison. Your soul, whoever you think you really are, your mind is trapped in a body. And you were put there in that body against your choice and against your will. You didn't ask to be born at all. That's why you're in a prison of being and existence itself. That's what uh, Heidegger referred to as the flungness or thrownness of being. We've been thrown into this world against our will. Woe is us. We must lash out and gnash our teeth and wail against it. We've been give orphan height into a body that was assigned a sex at birth. So some medical authority came along, looked at our genitals, and assigned us a sex. They gave a word, a categorization. A, they named the distinction of our body, which has nothing to do with who we really are, according to this which is a profoundly dualistic view, just like Gnosticism. And we are trapped in a body that got assigned to sex at birth, and we have to go through a forced or non-consensual puberty eventually that ripens our secondary sex characteristics and tertiary sex characteristics and gender characteristics as such uh, later as we develop. We didn't ask for any of that. And so if I feel like I was born as a boy, but I'm in a girl's body, I got flung into the wrong body and I'm trapped there. And the reason that I get treated like a girl, even though inside I'm a boy, is because a doctor said you're a girl and society said, yeah, you're a girl. So you had a sex assigned at birth. They tell you what you are. They don't know what you are. They don't know your soul, but they told you who you are based on your mundane fallen form, your body. In fact, the grossest, crudest part of it, your genitals, the most dirty, fallen part and i mean fallen like fall of man original sin fallen part of your body your genitals are used to determine through medical authority which they claim is a form of illegitimate power who you're going to have to be and then your parents are like oh she's a girl we're going to raise her as a girl we're going to make her wear girl clothes we're going to tell her what it means to be a girl we're going to make her play with girl toys and you hear all the things that they do to screw up kids because they think this is this is wrong they think that the parents in society, oh, she's a little girl. She's so pretty. She's getting called strong or whatever. Oh, look, she wants to play with dolls and flowers. And she wants to have a tea party. She doesn't want to play with trucks or throw the truck against the wall to break it, as all the boy moms understand immediately, just because they can. They think that that's socially imposed because a doctor looked at their genitals and decided we're going to call this thing based on its fallen, dirty, perverse um profane sexual organs. We're going to call this thing a girl. We're going to raise it as a girl and society's going to raise it as a girl and everybody's going to consider it a girl. We're going to reify its sex and gender identity as female through social norms, expectations about sex, gender and sexuality. This is a big key to how uh queer theory works and it's we'll see, we'll turn that key and unlock it through our looking at Michelle Foucault and Judith Butler later when we return to this. But you can see immediately how this is Gnostic. You were born into a body which imprisons you. It doesn't matter who you actually feel like you are. You were given a body. A doctor told you what that body means. Society inscribed, your parents and society inscribed that meaning into you through rampant social conditioning. And now you're trapped as a girl, when in fact, maybe you feel like a boy and you're imprisoned or maybe you're a girl, but you, you feel trapped into having to be girlier than you actually are. And that's a prison. But you can actually save yourself through having secret self-knowledge, esoteric self-knowledge of who you really are. We could call it, and I'll call it here, I don't know how often they call it your gender soul, your true soul, your true platonic Neoplatonic form. And knowing that provides you the pathway to salvation and escape from the prison of your being in your body. In other words, queer liberation. Sort of. It gets more complicated than that. So, gnosis, remember, is saving self knowledge. It's knowledge about yourself that saves you from the imprisonment of the demiurge. You know that the demiurge is a demon, so that when you finally die and meet God, your soul gets to go not where the demiurge would put it, but with God. That's the idea of Gnostic, let's say Christian belief. Well here, Gnostic gender belief is you know who you actually are. You awaken to the gender soul inside of you and you can actually live your life as who you were meant to be all along, contra society. It doesn't matter what society tells you. It doesn't matter what the doctors assigned you at birth. You get to be who you are. So maybe you're non-binary, maybe you're gender fluid, maybe you're trans, maybe you're just the other and you don't know what to do you can see how it's a Gnostic understanding of yourself. It's very easy to understand. Queer theory as Gnostic that way. Now, what about Hermetic? Hermetic, Hermeticism, I haven't covered it yet, so I got to spend a little time with it. It's more esoteric. It's more complicated. There are going to be future podcasts about this because it's hard. But the kind of a core thing of Hermeticism is that distinctions are in illusion. Anything that you think makes something different, like boy and girl, good and bad, whatever, it's all an illusion, in truth, all is one. Sounds very new age, right? Except it was written at least at least 600 years before Christ. It's not that new age. All is one. And in my notes, like you'll see it often in their writing, one is all in caps, O-N-E, giant letters, right? Because it, and sometimes they put it in bold in all caps to really indicate that it's oneness beyond all oneness. Well, the problem is that distinction's become a way to knowing. So the way that you understand the world is that we live in this kind of paradoxical situation as a hermeticist, where we know that the distinctions, this versus that, up versus down, left versus right, male versus female, we actually, we know that they're an illusion. There's just one undifferentiated perfect whole. But the only way to actually understand the world we're in is through the distinctions which we know are apparent. And so the goal is to overcome the distinctions and to see from the higher perspective of oneness, which is sometimes referred to literally in their literature as achieving not atonement, but at-one-ment, with hyphens and the word one separated, so it's pronounced at-one-ment with the universe. The reason is because in the hermetic belief is God is one, Though just one, oneness, the whole oneness, everything of the whole universe is God. Perfect oneness. It's undifferentiated, overflowing oneness. But there's one fatal flaw with being completely undifferentiated. It can't know about itself. So God is undifferentiated perfection in, in its wholeness. But that means that God has no distinction by which God can know that God is God. That's the problem. So in this, there's a whole mythology. I'm not going to get into it in this podcast. But in this problem, in trying to solve this problem, God ends up thinking because this is what God does. So first, there is a thought. And in the thought, immediately, the mind of God is slightly different from God, although only an illusion, only an appearance. And that splits into the logos and to Sophia, the male and female aspects, Of logic and wisdom. And through the process of this differentiation, they end up creating a world. The mundane world is created sort of as a dream of God or as a part of God. It's not separate from God, but it appears. It's an illusion of separateness and differentness, and mundane versus divine becomes a distinction. So that God now has an opposite. From The idea in Hermeticism is actually that the opposites—this is in Hegel as well—is that the the opposite, the antithesis, arises from within the thesis. You think about the original thing, and suddenly its opposite appears. So God is perfect, whole divinity, and the mundane world arises out of that as its natural opposite. How could you know what divine is if you don't have the mundane to compare it to? So a binary of divine and mundane— With one superior and one subordinate comes into existence by the mere question of what does it mean to be divine? So, if God were to ask merely the question, What am I? immediately, his perfect undifferentiated oneness says, Well, I'm something that's undifferentiated, but how can I understand undifferentiation without differentiation? And something that's not God, in other words, fallen and dead versus divine and alive, comes into existence. And that's the creation of the world and Hermeticism. Okay, so God, by his very nature of being a perfect creator, creates a world that seems a mundane world that seems to be God's opposite, which is divine. And what has to happen is for God to become whole again, he has to have a means by which he can see that this distinction is an illusion. So, seeing through this apparent distinction is what actually brings God back together into full wholeness. But now, wholeness where God knows that he's God, as opposed to wholeness where God doesn't yet know that he's God. See, it's like Mao said, it's the desire for unity, then criticism that leads to unity on a new standard. It's exactly the same formula. It's the hermetic formula. When Mao laid out criticism, unity, of criticism, as we talked about in the podcast detailing those ideas, or in the longer podcast about this cultural revolution we're in, that formula is a hermetic formula, undifferentiated to critiquing the falseness of the differentiation that appears as a result of contemplating it, resulting in a new higher level of understanding, which is undifferentiated completeness that knows it's undifferentiated and complete. See, and what man is within the uh, hermetic belief system is the character that can think. It is actually the mind of God trapped in a mundane form. And so as a shard of the mind of God, you have the capacity to do what minds do, which is to think, which is to see through the distinctions. And so when man realizes that the distinctions are all an illusion and all is actually one, including all men are actually one. So there's an inherent kind of total uh, kind of uh, collectivism here that often or typically would come into play um, of monism, if you will, kind of the Hindu idea that all is avatars of the one oneness. Um, it's called monism. Uh, when, when that finally is realized in the mind of man clearly, and I mean all man, all men have the same mind and they understand this, then God realizes it too. When man understands something because now it's understood, God must understand it because man is part of God and not, in fact, different from God. So man is the being that has the the unique special being in the universe that has the capacity to do the thing that God can't do for himself, which is to understand the true wholeness of God's being. And when that happens, we reach utopia because everything folds back into the perfect undifferentiated oneness that is now self-aware as perfect undifferentiated oneness. This is the basis for transformation, alchemy, humanization, these words we hear from Marxism. But the way that it actually works is destructive. It's alchemical. It is the destruction of the mundane form of what is, so that you can liberate the divine within it and gather together its true nature to recollect the pieces That's spooky, but that's what the disillusion, the acid, the deconstruction of queer theory is actually doing, is it's breaking apart the nasty, mundane forms of sex and sexuality so that everything becomes limited and we have that eros potential to build the perfect city that Marcuse was talking about. So you're going to destroy that which is mundane, which is an illusion anyway, so there's nothing lost, to release the divine within it so that it can remember that it's part of the divine and fold back into the divine. And when all of that's done, when all the distinctions are erased, all that's left is the divine. There is no mundane, and we're all one undifferentiated mass of holy perfection again. That's the hermetic religion in a nutshell. It's based on a bunch of magical principles that do this. There are, in fact, seven. I'll do a podcast on these at some point. I'll mention a few of them. One of them is the principle of mind or the mental principle, which is sounds very much like the secret and all of this new age bullshit, which is all ripped off from this. And it's that everything is mental. Everything is mind. It, all your distinctions are an illusion. Everything is down to its appearances. In fact, everything is phenomenal. Our experience of the world is a phenomenology. Hmm. Just like Hegel said, right? So reality is actually not necessarily real. Maybe it is and maybe it's not, but really what we think of as a reality is what we perceive. It's what we live. It's our lived experience. And it turns out that our perception is malleable. We can be conditioned to see the world differently. We could say, join a cult, at which point we would see the world through cult glasses. And then to make other people join the cult, we could tell everybody, if you don't join the cult, you're actually in a cult because you don't see the world through our glasses. And if you get enough people in the cult Everybody outside of the cult will start to feel crazy because they're not seeing through the cult glasses that so many other people see through. See how this actually works. And so, the all is mind, all is mental. Another one, a very important rule or law or principle in in Hermeticism is the principle of correspondence. The phrasing for that sounds very satanic to people who are familiar with these things. Duh. As above, so below. As below, so above. That's the full expression of the principle of correspondence. As above. So below, as in heaven, so on earth, as in heaven, or sorry, as on earth, so in heaven, it goes both ways, as above, so below, as below, so above. This is actually the articulation of most of how they do their magic, and I've talked about that recently in the past um, in, in Phoenix. Those talks are available. You can find them. I will detail it a little bit more as we go. There are a few others. There's a principle of polarity, the principle of vibration. So everything exists in polar opposites, but polar opposites are an illusion. That's a very, that's the principle of polarity, principle of vibration. Everything vibrates. And if you bring vibrations into alignment with one another, blah, blah, blah happens. And then there's a couple more. And then there's a principle of gender ironically enough, and I say ironically, we're going to bracket it and not talk about the principle of gender here because it actually says everything's broken into its male and female forms. But if we go back to the idea of the other principle of polarity that poles are are illusions, that distinctions are fake, then that means that those have to be somehow recombined. And the way that that happens is that we realize all is mind and all is mental. Now, by the way, a tangential point of the totalitarian nature of these hermetic cults uh, follows from mixing together the principle of polarity and the principle of mind if all is mind and if all distinctions are illusions all opposites are parts of the same whole is the other way that that's phrased what does that mean it means all minds are actually the same so any distinction between minds is a illusion it is a product of our fallen state so our holy state our, re, our redeemed state is when everybody has the same mind, everybody thinks the same thing. But the only way you can get to that is through complete ideological totalism. In other words, totalitarianism. And that's why it always goes there. This is the mystery of the 20th century's catastrophe solved, folks. It's that simple. But we're talking about queer theory, so we're not going to do that. So, one of your goals. Is to use these magical seven magical principles to move yourself through different levels of self-knowledge or gnosis, salvific self-knowledge. The goal is to move through those so that you can remove your false distinctions from God. And so it turns out that Hermeticism is based on a lot of triangles, trinities. As a matter of fact, threes. So you have the thing, you have its opposite, and you have the thing that makes the thing and its opposite the same. That's a trinity: one, two, three. Right. And so. There are lots of them. So in Christianity, we're familiar with the Trinity, and the big mystery is three is one, but it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or God, Christ, and the Holy Ghost. We're familiar with this, right? And there are different manifestations of what's called the Godhead, the different persons of the Godhead. There's the Father who art in heaven, there's the Son who came as uh, the unblemished uh, sacrifice and redeemer, and the Holy Spirit that moves people to uh, belief and faith. In God, and they act in the world accordingly or not. Well, these are phrased, possibly phrased otherwise. The Father is the unbegotten God according to uh, Hermeticism. The Son is the self-begotten God. It's God who begot himself into the world. Became begotten means brought into the world. Well, the Father is not brought into the world, so he's unbegotten. The Son is God bringing himself into the world, so he's self-begotten. And then the Holy Spirit is what moves in the world, so it is the begotten form of God. So you have the begotten, self-begotten, and unbegotten forms of God. And those are actually given hierarchical preference in, uh, in Hermeticism, except not because they're also identical. Now, the way that this actually tends to be phrased out in Hermeticism is that the unbegotten God is the undifferentiated one, the perfect undifferentiated all, the one, all in caps. The self-begotten is the mind of God. God begot his own mind. So mind, the principle of mental, or mind, the mental principle, is the son of God. It's also, therefore, the redeemer. It's the self-begotten form. God thought and the thought of God begot the mind of God. So God begot himself. So the mind, so it's the the undifferentiated one is the unbegotten father. The son is the self-begotten mind. And the begotten form of this that comes into the world is man. It's mind put into matter. Now, What that means is, in Hermeticism, you are the third person of the Godhead, but not just you, we, all of us. And that's why you see all that language like in Ferrari and so on saying, it's not the I that thinks, but the we. The, The I is fulfilled in the we. It's because I, but through we, through all of us, is the third person of the Godhead. It is the one, mind, and man. That's it. And so the goal is to elevate through the levels of spiritual ascension within the begotten universe up to the level of remembering that you are, are as the third person of the Godhead, able to elevate yourself back up to the second person of the Godhead and become self-beginning. You're not distinct. The distinctions are an illusion. That's the point. So you're using these magical principles to elevate yourself spiritually up to the point of being self-begotten. In other words, to become your own Christ, because it's salvific self-knowledge. You save yourself with your gnosis. You see how it works? And then when you achieve that, or when mankind achieves that, when mankind starts by remembering or realizing that he's the third person of the Godhead, and then elevates himself spiritually to realizing he's actually his own savior at the second person of the Godhead, then the end of history can arrive because everything becomes perfect and we fold back into the undifferentiated one and we re-enter into the first person of the Godhead and all is made whole again. And this, you hear the communist formula. We all have to adopt socialist consciousness. We have to accelerate the contradictions so that eventually we all have one communist mind. We become a perfect species being, at which point we've achieved the mind of God again. And then the utopia begins and we fold back into the perfect kingdom. That's literally the, the formula of socialism or of communism, Marxist communism. It's hermetic. That's actually the idea that Hegel saw through the phenomenology of spirit, describing how um, spirit develops. And at the end, it recognizes itself, how the Weltgeist becomes the absolute spirit. The absolute spirit is what? Absolute spirit is the spirit of the world that no longer sees itself as separate. It is the perfect idea, the absolute idea, is the perfected idea that's no longer the subjective idea and the objective idea separated. It is now the perfect idea that knows itself to be the perfect idea. It's the exact same formula. And this is characterized as, ascension through these spiritual levels is characterized as a process of becoming. Becoming what? Well it's becoming what you already are but forgot or don't realize because you've been trapped in a mundane body. You've been flung into the mundane world and you're trapped and don't realize that you are actually not just like God, that you actually are God. And now that sounds prof- profoundly crazy. That's an introduction to Hermeticism. And I'm sorry we have to do all this. Just We haven't got to the queer stuff yet. I know. Let me read to you from, they have a scripture. They have a number of scriptures. One of them is called the Corpus Hermeticum. And the first, it's broken into 17 books, which is a magical number in dialectical thinking for kind of stupid Pythagorean mathematical reasons, but it it's called the Spiral of Theodorus. You can look it up. You can go 17 times around, makes one turn, and then you have to start overlapping on. So you go on a higher level. If it's a spiral, it can't overlap on a single plane. So 17 steps around the circle once. So 17 is a transformational number. There are 17 books in the in the Corpus Hermeticum. There are 17 contradictions of capitalism and Marxism. There are 17 uh uh, what do you call them? Generative themes is what Freire says is necessary to conscientize somebody to another level of critical consciousness. There are 17 sustainable development goals for the Agenda 2030. These aren't mistakes, folks. These aren't mistakes. This is all Hermetic wizardry. But anyway, the first book of the Corpus Hermeticum is called the Poimandres, which is something you've probably never heard of. So Poimandres is supposed to be the voice or the mind, the voice of the mind of God, and it's speaking to Hermes. In this particular book. And so Hermes says, and I'm picking up in verse 24, they're numbered, they're longer than Bible verses. They're paragraphs. So paragraph 24 from the poemandres. Um, Hermes replies to the poemandres, You have taught me these things well as I wished, O oh nos. Now teach me how the way back is found. So just to give you some where am I where are we where where are we in this? Mythology that we're dealing with in the Poimandres. So you have Hermes, and he's being taught by the mind of God. That's Poimandres. Poimandres is teaching him, and he's referring to him as Nos. And I'm pronouncing that a little bit incorrectly. It's N O U S, it's a Greek word. Um, It means mind, and it's capitalized, and it's retained in the Greek in this translation, according to the translators, because they want it to be very clear that it represents what's meant by the kind of divine, holy mind of God the second person of the Godhead. So the second person of the Godhead is speaking to Hermes as his representative. Hermes says, you've taught me a lot about how the universe actually works. You've unveiled the truth to me, basically, as I wished. Oh, no. And he says, so now he knows he's trapped in this world, that he's not actually of this world. He's awakened to the fact that he is the third person of the Godhead, so to speak. And he says, now tell me how the way back is found, how the way back to God, back to oneness back to a lack of separation, to wholeness. To this, Poimandris replied, First, in the disillusion of the material body, one gives the body itself up to change. The form you had becomes unseen, and you surrender to the divine power your habitual character, now inactive. The bodily senses return to their own sources. Then they become parts again and rise for action, while the seat of emotions and desire go to mechanical nature." Remember that stuff that Marcuse was talking about, about the desires and all this? Yeah, okay. Thus, he says, and this is paragraph 25, and I'll do 26. I'm not going to say the numbers again. Thus, a man starts to rise up through the harmony of the cosmos. To the first plane, he surrenders the activity of growth and diminution. To the second, the means of evil, trickery now being inactive. To the third, covetous deceit now inactive. And to the fourth, the eminence pertaining to a ruler being now without avarice. To the fifth, impious daring and reckless audacity. And to the sixth, evil impulses for wealth, all these being now inactive. into the seventh plane, the falsehood which waits in ambush. So he says, you have these seven planes of existence. You have to elevate yourself through. First, you have to give up on growing or shrinking. Second, you have to give up on tricking and being evil. Third, you have to give up on covet and deceit. Fourth, you have to give up to greed and wanting the power to rule. Uh, Fifth, you have to give up, it says, daring and reckless audacity. So you have to give up impulsiveness. Sixth, evil impulses for wealth have to go away. And then the seventh plane, there's the last falsehood which waits in ambush you have to get rid of, rid of that, which is that you're a separate self. This is then stripped of the activities of the cosmos. So the first step of that, though, by the way, was that you, you, you give up the body itself. You surrender the body. And then you go through these spiritual transformations. And then at the end, you have to overcome the self itself, the falsehood, falsehood which waits in ambush, that you are you. He doesn't say that, but that's what it refers to if you read more of this. Then, he says, poimandres the voice of God speaking to Hermes, then stripped of the activities of the cosmos, he enters the substance of the eighth plane with his own power. That, by the way, the seven were the begotten realm that you ascend through, and then you can enter the self-begotten realm, which is the eighth plane. He enters the substance of the eighth plane with his own power, and he sings praises to the Father with those who are present. Those who are near rejoicing at his coming, being made like to those who are there together. So, being made like to gods or angels, he also hears certain powers which are above the eighth sphere, singing praises to God with sweet voice. Then, in due so, maybe be the archangels or the high angels. There's something higher than the eighth plane, singing praises to God with sweet voice. Then, in due order, they ascend to the Father. And they surrender themselves to the powers, and becoming the powers, they are merged in God. This is the end, the supreme good, for those who have had the higher knowledge, see the gnosis, to become God. That's what it says. This is the end, the supreme good, for those who have had the higher knowledge, to become God. Then he says, Well then, why do you delay? Should you not, having received all, become the guide to those who are worthy so that the human race may be saved by God through you? You are in hermetic belief to become the savior of humanity and yourself. You elevate yourself to the plane of the self-begotten, at which point you have attained the mind of God, at which point you have the capacity to save humanity and a moral obligation to do all of this. Doesn't that sound like how woke and Marxism operate? We all have to become socialists. We have to give up all of our stuff. We have to own nothing and be happy. We have to give up all of our, our inequities so that we can ascend spiritually to being our species being, at which point the utopia can begin to emerge and we will all be saved from ourselves and the world will be sustainable. It's exactly what's going on. So anyway, in Hermeticism, does our introduction to Hermeticism, because we're not going to do a whole lot more, but I'm going to summarize. In Hermeticism, using the magical principles, you are to renounce your body, and you're to renounce the world as it is, and you're to spiritually ascend. So it's an ascetic practice. You might go hide in a cave. You might go off like Nietzsche talked about, Nietzsche talked about, and become Zarathustra and hide in a cave and then come down and tell everybody how to be the Superman. So first, though, you must realize that you are not distinct from God. Then you have to go through stages to spiritually purify yourself, to transform your essence, to recollect the mind of God, to remember that you have the mind of God and thus are the mind of God, which will allow you to elevate yourself to the salvific status of self-begotten, which is mind itself, and then use that to save yourself and all of mankind. That's the religious duty of Hermeticism. I'm not kidding. That's the religious duty of Marxism. And queer theory. That's Mao's unity, criticism, unity. First, you have to have the desire for unity. Then you have to criticize and self criticize and struggle out all of those seven forms of worldly desire, or however many forms of worldly desire, to purge them out of you so that you can come together in a new form of unity on a new basis, which is socialist gnosis. And once you have the higher knowledge, you have become God. But it's not you individually, it's you plural. That's the story of Marxism marxism is hermeticism driven by gnosticism it's a religion it is a cult religion hundreds of millions of people have died and suffered as a result of us thinking it's an economic or social theory or political program when in fact it is a cult religion that will always end in civilizational scale jonestown which was the same cult religion by the way woke is not different the sustainability crap ESG, Sustainable Development Goals of Agenda 2030, and there's 17 Sustainable Development not different. Same thing. The reason that it's like this is because Hermeticism believes that God doesn't know he's God because he's the undifferentiated all and cannot directly know that he's God. So through man in his place in creation, man can realize his own divine nature, and through that, the illusion of all distinctions, which are what drive those spiritual Failures that you have to ascend through, and in the mind of man, or as in the mind of man, I should say, as above, so below, as below, so above, as in the mind of man, so in the mind of God, which are only distinct by illusion thats the distinction's not real anyway, man is God, so when man realizes his true nature as God, as the undifferentiated all, God realizes God is God and is actualized at which point. All actually becomes capital all, and all folds back into the all, and all distinction is removed, and thus all suffering, all death, etc., are erased because those things don't exist in God, which is perfect and atemporal, and all of this, because God is perfect and always is and always will be, etc. Man, therefore, makes God realize God is God in Hermeticism. And by realizing that God is God and that all distinction is illusion, the world is perfected. Man gets to go home, as it were, back to his spiritual, uh spiritual origins where he belongs in the first place, back to his birthright. My point here isn't actually to get lost in Hermetic esotericism. This is gonna be for other podcasts. It's super important to understand this. It's not irrelevant. It's actually really big. We're gonna to have to touch on Hermeticism a lot to understand queer theory. I told you it's gonna be a weird and long podcast. So Hegel, thus Marx, appropriated all of this machinery. Hegel was a hermeticist, and he called his hermetic alchemy the dialectic. That's not particularly in doubt. I encourage people to go read Hegel and the Hermetic Tradition by Glenn Alexander McGee, M-A-G-E-E, on this subject, for example. Hegel's big initiatory project is the phenomenology of spirit, which is literally geared toward the idea that the spirit of the world, that is, the socially constructed holy geist, moving society through history, unfolds through this kind of dialectical process hermetically, until it finally realizes and recognizes itself as the absolute spirit at the end of history. At that point, when it's the absolute spirit, it is the spirit that recognizes itself as itself, the spirit that knows that it's, it's it's the spirit that knows that it's complete. So man's role in this for Hermeticism and Hegel is to be the philosopher who thinks and makes the opposites collide through the principle of polarity, To force the synthesis, which is the removal of distinctions in the Hermetic project, the thing and its other, and that's a big idea, the thing, thesis, and its other, antithesis, the thing and its other, the divine and the mundane, whatever the two sides of the distinction are, have to be seen not as opposed, but as parts of the same whole from a higher perspective. In other words, Alfhaben, this is the dialectic. It's also literally just the expression of the principle of polarity in Hermeticism. So man, therefore, moves the dialectic through his thought, his reflection, and intentional conflict, using the Hegelian system as the mirror in which it should be reflected, so that you can understand it correctly. In other words, Hegel's system is the vernunft, the higher-level reason, that leads you to be able to understand what you're dealing with, so that it all continues to point in the direction it should go, which is to the full understanding and actualization of spirit when all distinctions are removed. So what Hegel created is Hermeticism retooled in modern era language. The idea becomes the Gnostic Demiurge for him. And when the idea realizes itself and awakens, it becomes the absolute idea, the absolute spirit. So the world spirit becomes this vehicle by which this is happening, and the Weltgeist, as he called it. And the phenomenology of spirit is talking about the evolution of the Weltgeist, and it becomes the absolute spirit when it realizes when it completes itself and realizes that it's now completed itself. But what is the world spirit? It is the socially and culturally constructed phenomena around us. It's how we understand ourselves in the world as social and culturally contingent beings. It's the spirit, if it were of the age, it would be zeitgeist, but it's the spirit of the people of the world and all their very and you say, well what is the world? There's so many people, so many Chinese people, Americans are in conflict, there's a war. All of it. And those conflicts are resolving themselves until finally it becomes whole again, because those are the illusory distinctions. So this Hegelian system is modern era spiritualism. It's the new age of the middle ages, finally codified for the modern period, looking scientific. And what we have then is that the spirit capital S Spirit, and you'll see this in woke documentation, especially around like the Fetzer Institute, where social emotional learning came from. The capital S Spirit is social-spiritual, and that's the term I'm going to use, is social-spiritual, social-spiritual. What I mean is that what Hegel was saying is that the thing that we consider the Holy Spirit is the world spirit. And when he considers it in the dialectical hermetic way, as this process oriented thing like i just described but the holy spirit is the world spirit it's the collective manifestation of man and his social and cultural aspects what he thinks and what he thinks about himself and how he interacts and how what that manifests into into the spirit of the different cultures and parts of the world and so the spiritual is no longer this kind of like spooky transcendental thing it's now cultural and it's socially constructed and culturally constructed and he pulled that from Rousseau. that's why Rousseau is relevant this is actually pulled it from Rousseau's concept of social contract theory and the idea that we are um, in chains through the social contract that binds us. So if we could just perfect the social contract, though, we would free ourselves. Man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. And it's the social strictures that put on us that put us in those chains. So this is a Hegel. Hegel created hermeticism. It's wizardry but he also creates the idea of the, so he doesn't really create, he kind of takes from Rousseau and codifies the idea that the spirit, the spiritual realm is social spiritual. It is, and I've hyphenated those. It's the sociality of the universe or of the universe of man, what we would call social reality or something or cultural reality or something like that. That's Maybe some words that we could use um, to describe what's meant. And that's where the spirit actually lives. So your soul is a part of the undifferentiated spirit. Remember, that's what you are in Hermeticism. You are your soul. What you mean is a piece of the undifferentiated spirit. But that's the social constructions of social reality. So you're just a piece of social reality, which is unfolding historically. Marx took all this and retooled it and stuck it in economic conditions. He relocated Hegel's project. He made it way more violent and way more angrily Gnostic. Um, So Gnosticism becomes a motivation to rebel against this unjust world and Hermeticism, the dialectic, dialectical materialism becomes his method. In fact, I have, I strongly suspect I haven't put together or finished putting together the case. I started it back in November and haven't come back to it, that Marx heavily plagiarized the Corpus Hermeticum directly. Uh, or maybe through an intermediary German source that I'm not familiar with when he wrote the economic and philosophic manuscripts in 1844, which I think are the religious or theological basis for a lot of his thought, not the only one, but a very significant piece. Um, Hopefully I'll be able to put that case together and deliver it. But in other words, all this crap about Hermeticism and Gnosticism turns out to be relevant because queer theory is a derivative of Marxist thought and Marx got it from Hegel and Hegel was a Hermeticist, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So that was a lot of introduction. I'm sorry. But it's really obvious in queer theory, we're almost there through the simple part. It's really obvious in queer theory, if we're honest about what's going on, especially in the trans aspects, that we're dealing not just with Gnostic, oh my God, I'm trapped in a body and I hate it and I have to escape the prison of my body, but we're also dealing with hermetic aspects. And in my secret gender soul knowledge is what saves me. That's the Gnostic side. But there's hermetic aspects here too. You are literally taking on self-knowledge that will save yourself from death in a sense, because your gender soul is going to actualize. So you are learning to ascend through the layers of socially constructed imprisonment of gender until you can divorce gender wholly from your body. And so gender and sex become wholly fluid and wholly dependent on mind, it's a mental phenomenon, and also on phenomenal and experiential knowing. Then you can Understand yourself as you truly are outside of the social constructions and begin to self-beget. And with transition stuff, with transgender stuff, you get to transform yourself. You get to transform yourself as a sexual being. You also get to transform yourself physically. So you are undergoing a process of discovering who you really are, your true soul, absent the social conditioning of the uh, social spiritual world, and then you are becoming who you actually are. As you slowly uncover and start to realize what you are, and this is a process of becoming divine and aware that you're divine, which is why we had the I, Joan performance that came out last year at the Globe Theater, Shakespeare's Globe Theater. Where you had this little Harry Potter looking girl or something come out with a little haircut saying non-binary or whatever and saying trans people are sacred because you're actually becoming divine. You're awakening your gender soul and overcoming the strictures of or your sexual soul. These are sexual and gender liberation. You're overcoming the socialization that's confined you in the prison of being. But you're doing so by transforming The prison itself through hermetic means and transforming yourself, as a matter of fact, the principle of correspondence turns out to be key to this. Like I said, I think I've said this before. I said this in Phoenix. I haven't said it here. For Marx, what his cleverness was is the principle of correspondence is as above, so below, as below, so above. That, that, that would actually state it backwards. That's the hermetic principle of correspondence. He, he says, no, 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 this isn't how it works. He doesn't say this explicitly, by the way. He says, we are the below. The proletariat is the below. The worker is the below. The everyman is below. So where we have to start is below, not above. Hegel was all in the ideas. That's above. Ideas, above. Idealistic, above. What did Marx say? We have to take Hegel and stand him on his head. We have to turn them upside down, not as above, so below, but as below, so above. That's what comes first. You start at below where we are. Do activism, which he called praxis, to change society. That will in turn, so as below, do activism, that's your praxis, so above. That will change society. The point is not to understand, but to change the world. It's not how we said it. He said, hitherto, the philosophers have sought to understand the world. The point is to change it, to do praxis. So you start below in the mundane, fallen world. You do praxis to change the world. And so the world, which is bigger than you, changes. See? As below, so above. That in turn causes society to get new norms because you've done social activism to accept the new socialist norms or queer norms or critical race, anti-racist norms. And then people will be socialized into those new norms And that's what Marx called the inversion of praxis. See, the state of society, the existing Geist, as Hegel would have it, but Marx would reject, the state of the social-spiritual is conditioning people. The world soul is conditioning the individual soul through what Marx called the inversion of praxis. That's as above, so below. So if you grab this snake by the tail starting at the bottom, and you do activism and change society, the new society will change the next generation of men, or even the same generation of men in the next turn of the screw. So you get two as above, so below to condition everybody by doing activism that changes society. Praxis, which leads to inversion of praxis, which leads to the snake eating its own tail in an endless cycle of transformation until you get to the final point, where there's no need for change because everything's undifferentiated species-being, communism. So you transform society through praxis, as a, he thought, saw it and sees the means of production. People think he means economic production. He doesn't. He means the production of humankind and society because you transform society through praxis to transform man in the next turn, and then you repeat, 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 repeat until liberation or utopia from the bourgeois demiurge is at hand. Queer theory does the same thing. We're going to have liberation from normalcy and normativity as a demiurgic force. You're going to change yourself, say through transition, through making yourself ugly, through getting purple hair, blue hair, through getting fat and demanding people want you, or whatever. All these queer activist things you see that seem very weird for transition. And then you're going to do moral extortion to force society to accept you for who you are, to see through it. Why are so many leftist women intentionally sloppy and ugly and dirty and stinky and armpit hairs and all this? Because it's a shit test, folks. You have to like the real them. Ask them why they don't dress up. Ask them why they don't clean up. Ask them why they don't wear a pretty dress. They'll tell you because you only like the socially imposed images of femininity. You don't like the real me. If you don't like me at my worst, you can't have me at my best. Sorry, sister, you're a lazy leftist. There is no best. You obliterated it. And it's a shit test because the goal of praxis in queer theory, is to change yourself so that you can force society into accepting you in your changed form. And then the new society that accepts those standards, those lowered obliterated standards, will socialize people on the basis of inclusion and belonging and all of that and then you do it again. You push the envelope further, and then you do it again. You push the envelope further, and eventually you land at queer liberation. It's the same program, the same project. It's hermeticism done in the Marxist Gnostic form. This is done as below by positioning yourself as the other to normal society. The other enables the thing to come to know itself because that's what actually happens. We're going to come back to this in a minute when we get into Simone de Beauvoir on the second sex, and everything will follow from there. Before I go there, do you see this? Do you see everything that I'm saying? This works when the, the program works by changing yourself and forcing society to affirm and celebrate and participate in you, your transformation. When society affirms your ultimately Gnostic spiritualist claim, what's happened is the social spirit, the social spiritual realm has transformed And now you have a new level of of queer understanding. A new queer horizon has been reached. The prison of the here and now has been broken free of. Are you seeing what I'm saying? So for Marx, you're becoming the species being or communist man or social man. In queer theory, gender becomes a social construct. It becomes irrelevant. It becomes fluid. And eventually there is no gender and nobody's imprisoned by expectations of gender because there are none affirmation, acceptance, celebration, participation, and all of these things reify the cult belief and make it real. And when society believes it in this Gnostic nonsense, it's, quote, true, because that's what truth really is for them, is a socially constructed concept. It's what society believes is true is what is true. So if you can convince society to believe it, it's true. And queer activism is to convince people that The abnormal has to subvert the normal until there is no exclusion by normalcy. It's that simple. Abolish normal as bourgeois private property, like Marxism. Like I said, we see all this. Just to summarize, we see it in some of the big players. I'm not going to talk much about, so just to touch on them so that I say the words. We read it in Marcusa and Eros and Civilization. I'm not going to do a thorough dive into that book here or even really anything else from it. We see it in Wilhelm Reich's Sexual Liberation, which kind of precedes Eros and Civilization. That's where the sexual liberation thing comes from. It's actually based on the same program in a much more prosaic way, just to mention this guy. It's also laying underneath the pervert John Money's introduction of gender identity. Um, This is where the concept of gender identity comes from. I'm not going to tell the story of John Money here. You should look it up if you don't know it. Uh, It's very relevant. It's a gross, terrible story, but it's a little more abstruse. I'm not going to say any more about it than this, but Money seemed to think of gender identity in this weird Gnostic dualistic way. Like it didn't really have anything to do with your sex. If you're born a boy, we could just raise you as a girl and you'd come out a girl. Um, But he really wasn't as deeply boiled in theory. He was just a dangerous creeper who had this kind of Gnostic, dualistic idea about gender being divorced from sex. So it kind of exists on a spiritual realm and will impose itself and inscribe itself on the body, which actually did inform some of these other people like uh, Judith Butler. Now we're going to turn to queer theory. That's the short version. Sorry, I know that wasn't very short. I didn't do it in 10 minutes. I wanted to really make sure you understood hermeticism. We're almost at two hours. Holy crap. Um, Let's see how we're doing here. Because we got a lot to go. Uh, I'm on page six out of eighteen of my notes. So we turn to the queer th- we turn to queer theory and we'll see how deep this really goes. In some sense, the first queer theorist is not Gail Rubin, like I've said in the podcast series I did about her thinking sex. It's not Judith Butler or Eve Sedgwick, who are very famous. It's kind of Michelle Foucault, honestly, and I'll make that case, but it really there's somebody before Foucault who's very relevant. And he gets the credit, I think, as the the progenitor of queer theory, though. But the first person who really points in the queer direction is the feminist Simone de Beauvoir. And nobody feminist is going to like me saying that. But she is the starting point. This is why feminists can't defend against queer theory or trans, because the gender constructivism at the heart of their project, the idea that gender is a social construct, leads to trans. They're just espousing a conservative political point. That's all they're doing. They, they can't stop at women or biologically women because that's just a political point. Biology is just another form of politics. And that all follows once you accept that gender is socially constructed rather than a statistically varied derivative of sex, a tertiary sex characteristic as you might have it. It is, however, primarily Simone de Beauvoir's concept of the other in a very hermetic way that becomes a key to the development of queer theory. She has her most famous book, is called The Second Sex, and women are the second sex. What she's saying there is that women are incomprehensible except as the dialectical other to men. But then in turn, men are incomprehensible without women as the other by which they define themselves. Everybody would just be human, but no, we have men and women, but men understand themselves in terms of women, and women are the second sex because they're subordinated. They're the fallen other of the hermetic. They're the mundane where man sets himself up to be divine. You can kind of see how this goes. And so I'm not going to read actually from Simonda before. I'm going to summarize from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy to give you an idea. But what she gives, according to them, is a phenomenological account of womanhood, of what it means to become a woman and to enact womanhood. Her most famous sentence is, one is not born, but becomes woman. And what this does, according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, entry for her, for Simone de Beauvoir, is that it inaugurates a sex-gender distinction and the social constructivism of gender and its criticism. So in other words, critical constructivism, which is the fancy words that actually mean woke, are inaugurated with regard to sex and gender in Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. So what she says, or what it says about her is what is not a matter of dispute is that the second sex gives us a vocabulary for analyzing how societal notions of femininity are lived and a method for critiquing them. So that's your critical constructivism part. In this sense, Beauvoir offers a critical phenomenological analysis of the socially constituted meanings of woman and how one comes to assume and negotiate those meanings experientially. For Beauvoir, one becomes a woman not just because others say so, but because she actively assumes her bodily existence in such a way. See, so the social constructions of what it means to be female are being imposed on you by the doctor, by society, but you have to seize the bull by its horns, and one way or the other, by rejecting or accepting those characterizations, you have to become a woman. You can do so on the terms set by society, and thus reify the construction of gender or you can reject those and try to do so with true agency. That's her That's her case. And so a person becomes his or her sex, in a sense, in the same way that one becomes a spiritual being, is more or less what's going on here. One realizes that their nature is ultimately spiritual, but in this case, it's one's sex that defines the relevant spiritual identity category. One's piece of the social spirit, or the, spirit, the social spiritual realm of Hegel, And so you get to choose, like I said, are you going to go along with it or are you going to reject it? Are you going to go along with it or are you going to try to find true agency outside of those constructions? And that's the critical constructivist approach. That's woke feminism is what that is, 1949 style. That's when this book was published. Beauvoir's account of becoming is of becoming, becoming woman. Beauvoir's account of becoming is crucial to understanding how human beings called women come into existence. Beauvoir's target here is essentialist arguments that view woman as a biological fact. So what's happening then, in my commentary, is that mundane biological reality and its consequences are the target. Why? Because she's angry at it. Because she's Gnostic. She's angry that she's born into a body as a woman and that there are patriarchal demiurgic forces that force her to be a woman in a certain way. So being a woman must be understood in this social spiritual way. what you're trying to do is free that social spiritual realm through the completion of that social spirit. Okay. And that results in the process of intentionally becoming a woman. And that's what her thesis is with one is not born, but becomes a woman. Beauvoir, this is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, believes it to be faulty to accept the common sense idea that to be born with certain genitalia or reproductive capacities is to be born a woman. In rejecting this position, asserted in the most famous line of the second sex, she pursues the first rule of phenomenology, and this is an important concept. Identify your assumptions, treat them as prejudices, and put them aside. So everything you take for granted, that's a prejudice. That's actually probably wrong. Ignore it. You can see how Stupidly, These people are going to think as a result of this, identify your assumptions, treat them as prejudices and set them aside. Do not bring them back into play until and unless they have been unless they've been validated by experience, which is going to be universalized social, spiritual experience, lived experience. Accordingly, she offers a descriptive account of how some human beings become women as a matter of living and imposed social identity rooted in and generated by particular historical, economic, and political conditions as well as social and moral conventions. In other words, Hegel's and Marx's social-spiritual Gnosticism is the framing in which she's understanding the becoming of a woman. Queer theory is queer Gnosticism. On this view, quote, woman is an invention, but also a lived embodied reality. So in other words, gnosis of what it means to be and become a woman is the experiential bridge between the material world, your genitals, your body, your reproductive capacity, and the social spiritual world in which womanhood has its true higher understanding and meaning. That's my analysis. Back to the encyclopedia, it says, for Beauvoir, the social destiny, those who become women are expected and often coerced to assume is bound up with heterosexism, such that to become a woman is to be made and make oneself an object for men. That make oneself part is really important because it's, you're not being forced, you're being tricked into a false spirituality, a false consciousness of what it means to be who you are, and thus you are actually becoming the puppet of the uh, social spirit that's that's trapping you, the demiurge of society, which in this case is patriarchy, you are actually internalizing the patriarchy or the misogyny and doing it to yourself. You're becoming a plaything for men because you're being conditioned by men to, dis- to want to become the plaything for men. An object, it says, but whatever. The detriment of such self-making—see, we're talking about self-begetting, but you're being begotten on the demiurge's terms, not your own—the detriment of such self-making, Beauvoir shows, is that women uh, a woman comes to live in an existence relative to men. In doing so, a woman becomes the other, the lower, subordinated, mundane form. But remember, in Hermeticism, that's the way that the higher form can come to know what it is and complete it so that they would realize they're not different. That's why it's Hermetic. Women, however, are usually accomplice to the self-making, as being made the other. Although a condition of of oppression also bestows recognition and self-justification in a patriarchal milieu. See, this is what I said: women are fallen by accepting their status as the other to the divine male that gives them the whole, gives the whole binary itself and the dynamic meaning. But they can be made conscious or gnostic to this fact and save themselves by intentionally reversing it—a hermetic reversal by. Resisting it and gaining one's own agency, in other words, saving yourself from the demiurge by becoming a woman on your own terms, absent the patriarchy, which then becomes the puzzle. What does that look like? Well, the gurus, the feminists, will tell you. That's how. Beauvoir also sees becoming woman as in accepting womanhood, though absent patriarchal constraint upon it. See, so if you really want to become a woman in a liberated fashion, you have to figure out how to avoid all of the subtleties of patriarchy. Doesn't this sound exactly like all feminism has been for the last 70 years? Because this is what it is. Womanhood being liberated from its defining binary, absent the patriarchal demiurge's influence. It's very Gnostic, it is the true nature of womanhood. So you're going to self-beget as a woman. It's very hermetic. Knowing and pursuing this is the Gnosticism. Now, the feminist views on virtually everything follow from this. It's like I just said, as does all of queer theory. That's why she's really the progenitor from queer theory of queer theory. But I want to pause for a second because the, I get in trouble every time I bring this up, but you've got to hear it. The feminist views on, you can talk about the wage gap, all this other crap, but it's the view on abortion that they have to be absolutely free from the reproductive capacities of the body they were born into through whatever technological intervention they can have, that is a Gnostic position. They were flung into a woman's body. They can be flung into a pregnancy by accident that they didn't choose, even though they did maybe choose, not necessarily, but probably did or possibly did choose the activity that led to it. They can be flung into a pregnancy that they didn't choose that means womanhood as, or motherhood is being forced upon them, forced motherhood, forced birth, just like forced puberty, just like forced being thrown into the world, the flungness of being of Heidegger. This is how they think about abortion. And if you don't understand that there are three positions on abortion, one that's trying to be reasonable and understand things, one that's very socially conservative and is completely against it, and one that believes it is an imprisoning imposition upon a woman's existence to possibly to have been born with a uterus so that they can possibly become pregnant, which is by the way, insane. It's a complete rejection of reality. If you don't understand that those are three different positions, you think there are just two, pro-life pro-life and and pro-choice, you have nothing to add to that conversation. You just can't do it because you don't understand you understand the right side, the right wing side, you don't you probably understand the middle side, but you have absolutely no idea what's going on with the radical left side, which is actually driving most of the dynamic between the far right and far left. Okay, so anyway, to close up here, embodiment is central for Beauvoir. The body may imprison the soul unless we figure out how to liberate the soul through the fulfillment of what is actually, what it actually means to be embodied as such. Absent social expectation and patriarchal socialization. So everything I just said about Beauvoir is confirmed in this next paragraph from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy about Beauvoir. They just don't actually tell you that she's doing Gnosticism here. In other words, women are liberated, again, that means from the demiurge. They are liberated by being able to become women as women, not as dialectical other to men. They don't realize that they're literally describing Uh, esoteric religion here, but they are. And then they say this sets up Foucault for his contention that the soul actually therefore imprisons the body, thus Butler and all the rest later, even as their direction necessarily refutes Beauvoir's intention. Okay, so that's what's happening here. So after Beauvoir, Michel Foucault stands out as the progenitor of queer theory, and I think he really is the progenitor of queer theory more so than Beauvoir because she was so distinctly feminist, as opposed to queer. She very definitely was woman. So the next chapter in the story chronologically and conceptually should be Michel Foucault, but I'm not going to talk about Foucault directly, actually. I'm going to—he's a French postmodernist, if you don't know who he is— History of Sexuality, this kind of thing, which is taken as kind of the original key text of what turns into be queer theories, the history of sexuality— but I'm going to turn instead to his one of his sort of, I would say biographer, but hagiographer is more, literally more accurate, David Halperin. A hagiography is turning somebody into a saint, by the way, it's sanctification or whatever. Um, and so David Halperin in 1995 uh, gave the first authoritative definition of the word queer, which is at the center of queer theory. And queer theory got its name a couple of years, two or three years earlier from Teresa de Laurentiis. Uh, De Loretis. There is no N in there. Uh, Branding of this new so-called radical sexual theory uh, as queer theory. So you remember that it was a radical politics of sex for Gail Rubin. If you listen to that podcast I did on Thinking Sex, you actually hear that in Butler, this radical sexual politics that they're looking for. Teresa De Loretis named it queer theory in 92 or 93. And Halperin in 95 writes this book called Saint Foucault. And uh defines queer. Uh, so he actually answers what is queer in that book and uses Foucault as the lens by which that's going to be done. In fact, the canonization of Foucault as a queer saint, because it's very religious, literally. Um, And his answer is that it is an identity of pure resistance, an identity of pure becoming, just like that horizon thing we started with, an identity without an essence. That's a phrase he uses more than once. It's an identity without an essence. He uses terms like self-fashioning and queer self-fashioning throughout the book. So you know that it's this self-begotten hermetic thing if you actually know what you're reading. And the book His full title is Saint Foucault Toward a Gay Hagiography. So he's trying to erect a gay saint, no pun on erect. He's trying to to, to create the first gay saint in Michel Foucault. And the book is called Saint Foucault. For those of you that saw my Oxford debate, and I ripped out the Halperin and Saint Foucault, blah, blah, blah. And I said this, people thought I was making a joke and saying I'm treating Foucault like a saint. And they're like, it's really clever. You came up with it. No, no, no. It's the title of the damn book. Um, it is actually the title of the book, which, by the way, is recommended reading by the Gospel Coalition, which is really weird, especially since I'm going to skip most of the really crazy parts, like the parts where he describes um, putting one's uh, fist up people's uh, buttholes uh, and describes it as art of anal yoga over a cu- couple of a few pages or whatever in the middle of the book. It's really something and how transformative a practice that is. I'm going to skip that stuff. I'm just going to talk about the concept of queer in his treatment of Foucault. He says to shift the position of the homosexual from that of object to subject. So you're hearing that same language again is therefore to make available to lesbians and gay men, a new kind of sexual identity, one that is characterized by its lack of a clear definitional context content. Sorry, the homosexual subject can now claim an identity without an essence to do so is to reverse the logic of the supplement. That's this binary thing. And to make use of the vacancy left by the evacuation of the contradictory and incoherent definitional content of the homosexual in order to take up instead a position that is and always had been defined wholly relationally by its distance to and difference from the normative. So queer means it's something defined in terms of its distance to and difference from the, the normative. In other words, we have that same other phenomenon we just heard from Beauvoir where woman is other, now the homosexual is other, and it's being assumed in the concept of homosexuality as being other to heterosexuality. And Halperin is saying that what queer does is shifts out of that, it sidesteps that dynamic, and it leaves a vacuum by doing so, a kind of a dialectical, a negative dialectical vacuum. So by defining queer Absent the very concept that gives it its meaning, which is its difference from homose- or for heterosexuality, you sidestep the dynamic the same way that Beauvoir was looking to, to define woman absent patriarchy on her own terms. The idea is the same. The concept that heterosexuality sets the standard for what sexuality means can be vacated, and sexuality can now be defined absent that demiurgic heteronormative force simply by being that which heterosexuality is not. It's defined wholly relationally by its distance to indifference from the normative. That's what he says. So gnosis, or queer gnosis in this case, would be, the Gnosticism would be, the perception of this dynamic and the understanding that it is imposed and inscribed upon people. And so that you can sidestep it by being queer and thus liberate it, yourself from it by rejecting the 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 hegemony of the, the binary itself. He goes on, he says, homosexual identity can now be constituted not substantively, but oppositionally, not by what it is, but by where it is and how it operates. Those who knowingly occupy such a marginal location, so you intentionally marginalize yourself, who assume a de-essentialized identity that is purely positional in character, it is that which is outside of heterosexual, are properly speaking not gay, but queer. That's what he says. So that's your first real definition of queer in queer theory. So what we see is that queer means knowingly opposing the so-called essentializing or demiurgic power of normativity that happens through sex, gender, and sexuality as a result of biology and society. It's literally defined in terms of a salvific knowledge or gnosis about the truly esoteric nature, not the exoteric nature of sex, gender, and sexuality that we all understand and see and talk about, but an esoteric nature of what it really means to be that that's hidden, that isn't available within the prevailing oppressive and thus carceral framework. In fact, that's a running theme largely due to Foucault, who was very Gnostic in this. Foucault thought everything was a prison. Everything functions in terms of how it becomes a prison for being. In fact, he always talked about how his deconstruction was meant to expand the potentialities of being because you're breaking down the bars and walls of the prison of being. So the demiurge is, he doesn't just build the world, he builds it as a prison. So he's your prison warden. And so that's a carceral framework, carceral, like incarcerate, like go to jail. So you're incarcerated in your beingness. And the goal here is to position yourself as the dissolver of the prison walls. Queer oppositionalism, then, is precisely what a queer Gnostic would do with themselves to affect that social spiritual jailbreak from heteronormativity, which is a prison of being built out of social norms and constructions around issues of sex, gender, and sexuality, which is sometimes called the closet. Now, of course, they're just going to say that biology and reproduction and all that are just understood in terms of those power dynamics. They're not genuinely true. He says, this is back to Halperin. and unlike gay identity, which, though deliberately proclaimed in an act of affirmation, that's your coming out of the closet, is nonetheless rooted in the positive fact of homosexual object choice, queer identity need not be grounded in any positive truth or in any stable reality. Doesn't that sound familiar? So he's saying that that's what it, 1995, he's explaining, this is what it means to be queer, need not be grounded in any positive truth or any stable reality. You don't have to affirm yourself as queer, you just don't be queer not queer. So gay identity, this is my interpretation, affirms this demiurgic system. You coming out as gay or lesbian, I'm bi, I'm gay, gays groomers, for example, you're actually affirming the system. This is why gays are under attack by the queer theory thing. This is why the T and the Q don't get along with the LBG, because you are just occupying the position of other in the same way as the woman who affirms herself as the plaything of men. So it's dead from a Gnostic or activist perspective. It's not useful hermetically to do that. You're just, if you're coming out and affirming yourself as gay or lesbian, you're just saying, I'm imprisoned and I know it and I love the bars. That's it. I love my prison warden. Queer, however, rejects the concept of the prison entirely, along with truth and stable reality, because that's actually what the bars are really made of. So pause to imagine just for a second, since some of us had to do a drag queen story hour in early childhood psychology, how destructive that is for a child. Never mind adults. It's destroying an adult mind, too. Look at Dylan Mulvaney. Pause to imagine how destructive this is for a child to encounter. Halperin says, as the very word implies, queer does not name some kind of some natural kind. Queer is not a natural kind. He says that. Or refer to some determinate object. It acquires its meaning from its oppositional relation to the norm. In other words, because it's opposing anything normal, that's what it means. Queer is by definition whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, and the dominant. There's your sentence. Queer is by definition whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, and the dominant. There is nothing in particular to which it necessarily refers. It is an identity without an essence. In other words, queer means you've Gnostically awoken to the fact that you're imprisoned by the realities of sex and sexuality, and you're in Gnostic, angry defiance of that prison. And you're in angry Gnostic defiance of the facts of human sex and sexuality because you see those things as... And resent those things as a kind of demonic constructor that's portraying itself as good and natural. That's what queer theory is actually about. It is a rebellion against reality for the crime of being in a body that is inherently sexed and sexual. As Halpern says it, queer then demarcates not a positivity, but a positionality vis-a-vis the normative, a positionality that is not restricted to lesbians and gay men, but is in fact available to anyone who is or feels marginalized because of his or her sexual practices. So in other words, perverts. But to pull people and especially kids into this cult, they will sell it as anyone who has specialist or different or peculiar sexual practices or interests or desires. And they can convince kids and teenagers, especially that that's anyone. You're demisexual, you're graysexual, you're amorphous asexual, or whatever. They have a million different sexualities, romantic identities, gender identities, etc. And whatever the quirks of your personality are as a teenager, just starting to see this stuff and figure this stuff out, they can convince you that that's you. That's really you. There's an identity for that, and has a flag, and all these like astrological symbols associated with it. They can convince kids that. Everyone is queer because they have marginalized sexual practices, because they can take the finest details of a personality, say that's a sexuality that the world doesn't actually recognize as a sexuality, and convince them that they're queer and pull them into the cult. That's how that actually works. So he gives some examples, though. He says it could include some married couples without children, for example. Married couple, no children, queer. Or even, who knows, some married couples with children with perhaps very naughty children. He says that. ish. They go there every time. Query says in any case does not designate a class of already objectified pathologies or perversions. See, it's about perversions. Rather, it describes a horizon of possibility whose precise content and heterogeneous scope cannot in principle be delimited in advance. So in other words, queer theory has no... Bottom point. There is no end to how perverse it can be, how far it can twist, how much it can destroy. Anything that becomes normative has to be queered and destroyed. Anything that becomes accepted has to be made, uh, has to be challenged with queer theory further. Remember the quote, though, we started with from the drag queen story, hour paper, queerness is not yet here. Queerness is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. You hearing the same stuff here? We have never uh, we have never been queer, yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and is used to imagine a future. Doesn't that sound hermetic now? The future is queerness's domain. Queerness is a structuring and educated mode of desiring that allows us to see and feel beyond the quagmire of the present. The here and now is a prison house. That all makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? That was the opening quote. That's from from José Esteban Munoz, uh 2009 book, Cruising Utopia, quoted in the Drag Queen Story Hour paper as a motivation for why you do Drag Queen Story Hour. It is a form. Sorry, we're going back to David Halper and Let me make it clear. It is from the eccentric positionality occupied by the queer subject, that it may become possible to envision a variety of possibilities for reordering the relations among sexual behaviors, erotic identities, constructions of gender, forms of knowledge, regimes of enunciation, logics of representation, modes of self- Constitution and practices of community for restructuring that is the relations among power, truth, and desire. So, in other words, what he's saying is that queer gnosis becomes a platform from which queer transformation, or in other words, queer alchemy and hermetic magic, can be launched. Mostly designed to change the social, spiritual dimension, as Hegel had it, of human existence with regard to sex, gender, and sexuality under the auspices of modern and postmodern esotericism blah, 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 blah. This is religion. This is very perverse pagan religion, and they're visiting it on your kids and calling it liberation. How does he bring Foucault into this, since that's what this book is about, and that's who we really need to look at? He says, homosexuality for Foucault, he gives Foucault credit for all of this, is a spiritual exercise. Let's just say that part again. Homosexuality for Foucault is a spiritual exercise, insofar as it consists in an art or style of life through which individuals transform their modes of existence and ultimately themselves. So in other words, Foucault is a queer hermeticist in practice. But because he saw everything is so, everything in the social world as carceral, as imprisoning, as demiurgic power, he's motivated by a raw, destructive, or deconstructive, I guess, queer Gnostic belief. Gnosticism is the motivation, hermeticism is the means, and what we're dealing with in queer theory is queer Gnosticism. That's the thesis of my podcast today. Halpern says, homosexuality, and he's talking about for Foucault, is not a psychological condition that we discover, but a way of being that we practice in order to define the meaning, as above, so below, as a me- in order to redefine the meaning of who we are and what we do, in order to make ourselves and our world more gay. As such, it constitutes a modern form of ascesis, or ascetics. I don't know how to say that, asceticism, exactly like you saw with the Hermeticists and the Gnostics back in, you know, 2000 years ago, pulling it intentionally away from the existing world. Being gay is what is something that Foucault said is a form of a thesis. just like being Gnostic. It is Gnosticism here. You're not physically pulling out, like going and meditating in a cave though. You're doing it morally. You're adopting queer morals, queer ways of living and being, etc. As a spiritual awakening, but not just as a spiritual awakening in yourself, but for the purposes of transforming yourself and the world around you, the social reality around you. For queer hermetic alchemy, the quote here is, why do you become homosexual? To make ourselves and our world more gay. So ascetics like Buddhists often believe that they can go off and withdraw into a cave and meditate on the spiritual advancement of humanity overall, and then that makes the whole world advance spiritually, makes it more peaceful and so on. Um, that's the idea of like the bodhisattvas or whatever in a lot of cases. So, this is the same thing, but you're now just doing it by being queer. By withdrawing from sexual norms in society, they're making so that's the asceticism. You're withdrawing from sexual norms. You're still living in society, you're still doing stuff, but you're withdrawing from all the sexual norms. You thus, therefore, can make the world, quote, more gay. That's transformational hermetic magic. It's undeniable, that's the principle of vibration, right? Uh, it's undeniably a social spiritual practice. Then it's undeniably hermetic. It's undeniably religious, occult religion. You could imagine what I'm about to read from helper. And I want you to put into your head that we're reading something that's actually a Buddhist tract. I know it's going to be about queers. It'll be difficult. I'm not insulting Buddhists or whatever, but imagine it's like a Buddhist tract talking about a Bodhisattva who has been enlightened and remains into the, in the world so he can transform the world and save others from the this, this, uh, cycle of samsara, the cycle of suffering. Uh, he says, this is Halperin, Foucault proposes to us that instead of treating homosexuality as an occasion to articulate the secret truth of our own desires, we might ask ourselves, quote, what sorts of relations can be established, invented, multiplied, modulated through our homosexuality? The problem is not to discover in oneself the truth of one's sex, but rather to use from now on one's sexuality to achieve a multiplicity of types of relations. End quote. So, in other words, homosexuality is not about saving yourself from the Gnostic prison of being alone, but it's actually about saving the world from its own suffering through that same set of social relations. In other words, so we can transform the world and end all the suffering caused through the demiurge's power of establishing norms that are built around the physical realities of sex and sexuality that they deny. They deny biology, by the way. P.S. That's sex essentialism. That's bad. That's the target. Okay, so back to Halperin. He says, expanding on this theme, about four years later, by the way, Foucault expressed himself as follows, quote, it's up to us to advance into a homosexual assesist so that uh, that would make us work on ourselves and invent I don't say discover, a manner of being that is still improbable, end quote. By means of such a homosexual ascesis, a transformative queer practice of the self, we might be able to, quote, define and develop a way of life that in turn, quote, can yield a culture and an ethics, end quote, new forms of relationship, new modes of knowledge, new means of creativity, and new possibilities of love. So hermetic transformation of the world. He goes on, he says, Foucault insisted that homosexuality did not name an already existing form of desire, but was rather, quote, something to be desired. Our task is therefore, quote, to become homosexual, not to persist in acknowledging that we are, meaning that we are homosexual. So in other words, one is not born, but becomes homosexual, right? Same as Simone de Beauvoir. Thus the relevance of Beauvoir to Foucault in setting it up. Foucault is echoing her sentiments and her structure exactly, which we already heard are Gnostic and Hermetic. And he means roughly the same thing she did. He's just actually kind of stolen the idea and stuck it somewhere else. As Halpern puts it, or to put it more precisely, what Foucault meant is that our task is to become queer. So I want you to hear the word queer here as enlightened. Having achieved spiritual awakening and Gnosis, a saving self-knowledge that allows you to break jail out of the prison of being in a world that functions like a prison that's full of unnecessary imposed suffering through norms and expectations about sex and sexuality. It is religious awakening to become queer. And that's what he's saying. Foucault meant our task is to become queer. Why? So you can transform the world to end that situation. It's the Gnostic Hermetic program. It's queer Gnosticism. Halpern says, For his remarks make sense only if he understood if if he understood his term, quote, homosexual, according to my definition of queer, as an identity without an essence, not a given condition, but a horizon of possibility and opportunity for self-transformation, a queer potential. So again, this is just like Beauvoir. You become queer increasingly by rejecting the so-called demiurge's power of expectations, norms, normativity, or for her, patriarchy, and defining what it means to be. So in defining queer as the other set against an illegitimate standard is, 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 is the necessary step to be able to break the idea of the illegitimate standard in the first place. So the queer hermetic alchemy happens just like with Bavar's alchemical feminism. You deliberately occupy a self-begotten identity. You ascend through levels of rejection of what's given and apparent and socially expected in the world to arrive at your self-begotten position that is actually the second posi- second person of the queer hermetic godhead. There you have trans people are sacred. There you have agency because your mind, your nose, is fully gnostically awakened, and then and only then do you actually have agency. You're not becoming a woman, a woman according to men. You're not becoming homosexual according to straight. You are just becoming queer, as Halpern says, because one can't become homosexual, strictly speaking. Either one is or one isn't. That's reality, folks but one can marginalize oneself, one can transform oneself, one can become queer. Indeed, queer marks the very site of gay becoming. So what we're dealing with, yet again, is quite explicitly queer alchemy, which is queer hermeticism, which is the actionable form of queer Gnosticism, and this is the cult religion of queer theory. He quotes Foucault on this point, this is all Foucault. I think it is politically important that sexuality be able to function the way it functions in the saunas, where without having to submit to the condition of being imprisoned in one's own identity, in one's own past, in one's own face, one can meet people who are to you what one is to them. Nothing else but bodies with which combinations, fabrications of pleasure will be possible. Isn't that gross? This is Foucault, folks. These places afford an exceptional possibility of desubjectivization or desubjection, perhaps not the most radical, but in any case sufficiently intense to be worth taking note of. Anonymity is important because of the intensity of the pleasure that follows from it. He's talking about getting together and having orgies and saunas with other men. P.S. It's not the affirmation of identity that is important. It's the affirmation of non-identity. It's an important experience in which one invents, for as long as one wants, pleasures which one fabricates together with others. So that's what it's like, apparently. And what Halpern says is Foucault's treatment of homosexuality as a strategic position, instead of as a psychological essence, opens up the possibility of a gay science without objects, of a queer studies founded not on the positive fact of homosexuality and therefore not possessed of conventional a conventional claim to legitimate authority grounded in a privileged access to truth, but in an ongoing process of gay self knowing and self formation, again with a self-begetting. Foucault's approach also opens up, correspondingly, the possibility of a queer politics, defined not by the struggle to liberate a common, repressed, pre existing nature, but by an ongoing process of self constitution and self transformation. A queer politics anchored in the perilous and shifting sands of non-identity, positionality, discursive reversibility, and collective self-invention. Collective self-invention. Hear it? Okay, so the thing where you're, it's, you're anonymous in the saunas, just chasing pleasure and being really gross. What's that about? Oh, we remember that we read in the Poimandres that you have to throw off all of these layers of being. You're throwing off your layers of identity. It's not who you are. It's just what you're doing. It's just how you're being. It's chasing those pleasures that you fabricate together with other people. You're throwing off that which differentiates you from the other so that you can have collective self-invention under the auspices of queer. This is queer alchemy. Queer queer self-invention is queer self-begetting and is the goal of queer hermetic Gnosticism. This is a religious cult. Queer theory is the doctrine of a religious cult. Now, speaking of the uses of Foucault for this cult, let's turn our attention to the queen, Judith Butler, widely regarded as one of the key founders of queer theory. Now, in Gender Trouble, 1990, that's her most famous book, um, she really lays this kind of connection out. I'm going to kind of bring it out. I know Judith Butler is hard to read, but the book, this book you need to understand, and if you understand nothing else about gender trouble, this book is about drag. The thesis of the book could all be summarized in the following sentence. It sounds kind of like the hermetic principle, as above, so below, as below, so above. It's life is drag, drag is life. That could That's the summary of her book. Life is drag, drag is life. Everything, we're always doing drag all the time. So here's Judith Butler, famously hard to read, but I'm going to make this clear for you. If the inner truth of gender is a fabrication, if, right, if, and if a true gender is a fantasy, instituted and inscribed on the surface of bodies. So I'm going to come back to that and read it again so we can have continuity in the, but I'm going to explain that. So there's a big if. So this is, what is she framed out? She's framed out a Gnostic social spiritual belief about gender, including how the social spiritual realm is inscribed, the divine realm is inscribed onto the mundane aspects of ourselves, onto our bodies. So now gender and sex are being inscribed onto the body. This is sort of the opposite of what you think. It's We're not imprisoned in a body, that the body's imp- or by a body, where the, the body is being imprisoned by this inscription on it. So that's defining a bridge, by the way, between the spiritual or noumenal world and the physical and phenomenal understanding of the world. And that usually defines their cult religion. That's what she's setting up here, okay? A Gnostic social spiritual belief about how gender works. And so just to get the continuity, I'll read it again. If the inner truth of gender is a fabrication, and if a true gender is a fantasy instituted and inscribed on the surface of bodies, then it seems that genders can be neither true nor false, but are only produced as the truth effects of a discourse of primary and stable identity. So in other words, what she say there? That's hard words. Genders aren't real. And if they're not real, they're the result of that social spiritual milieu as it gets inscribed on the bodies. This kind of gives birth to something that operates like a gender soul, and those souls are trapped not specifically in the bodies that they inhabit, but in the prevailing social spiritual world, in the social and spiritual prison of the incomplete dialectical world that we inhabit, that will stay incomplete until we have complete queer awakening. She writes, in Mother Camp, Female Impersonators in America... P.S., that's a drag book. Anthropologist Esther Newton suggests that the structure of impersonation reveals one of the key fabricating mechanisms through which the social construction of gender takes place. In other words, a social spiritual phenomenon, the social construction of gender, how does it take place? And so we're going to understand it through drag. That's what she said. This whole book is about drag. So what she's saying, though, is that we're all impersonating gendered beings. We're all doing drag all the time. Life is drag. And through this mass impersonation, through this mass gender performance, that defines a social structure that creates this social spiritual world, the geist, the gender geist, that makes gender seem real in the first place. That's what she's actually saying there. And so then she says, I would suggest as well that drag fully subverts the distinction between the inner and outer psychic space that effectively, sorry, and effectively mocks both the expressive model of gender And the notion of a true gender identity. So drag is the tool by which you can initiate the process of your queer awakening. She says this in Newton. She quotes Newton. She says this Newton character, this drag character writes, at its most complex, drag is a double inversion. This says appearance is an illusion. Drag says, my outside appearance is feminine, but my essence inside the body is masculine. So, I look feminine, but I'm a man. But at the same time, it symbolizes the opposite inversion. My appearance outside, in other words, my body, my gender, is masculine, but my essence, who I feel like I am inside, myself, is feminine. Both claims to truth, this is back to Judith Butler now interpreting that, contradict one another and so displace the entire enactment of gender significations from the discourse of truth and falsity. So gender isn't a matter of true and false or real or fantasy. It's this kind of murky social spiritual milieu. You can be male in true body and portray as female so the world perceives you as female, but in so doing what you're actually doing is that you are knowingly that you are still male, but that you feel female inside. So female on the deepest inside Portrayed through a male body, performing as female comes out, and you have a double inversion of gender, which reveals that gender has nothing to do with truth and falsity. That's what she's saying. In other words, hermetic wizardry, playing off the principles of gender and correspondence. This is all pretty obvious the result is the confusion of any distinction about what is male and female, masculine and feminine, and what they might really mean. In other words, the removal of distinction. Distinction becomes too confusing to engage. So rather than occupying a higher position where you understand them both to be part of the same thing, you now are occupying a position where they're so confused that they're incoherent. This is a negative dialectic instead of a positive dialectic. Now here's where this gets deeper, because Butler cites Foucault, and we're going to go into a deep, important place for queer theory. She says, in Foucault's terms, the soul is not imprisoned by or within the body, as some Christian imagery would suggest, but the soul is the prison of the body. Okay, so this seems very mysterious. The soul is the prison of the body. The soul isn't, it's not the, it's not that I have a gender soul trapped in my wrong body. It's the other way around. The soul is imprisoning the body. The body is imprisoned by the soul, and this is hard to get. Until you get this, you don't get queer theory. It seems very mysterious, and it seems opposite to the construction I gave earlier, but remember what she just said about drag. It's doing both inversions at once, and that's what queering is all about. The soul is imprisoned in the body, and the body is imprisoned by the soul. That's what's actually happening. She literally just said that, quoting Newton. This is the queer Ouroboros, the the, the snake that eats its own tail. As above the soul, so below the body and as below the body, so above the soul. So there's your hermetic principle of correspondence. So what she's actually saying, though, about Foucault, or what she's saying Foucault is saying, and she agrees, is that the soul, which is that social-spiritual realm Hegel laid out, is what imprisons the body and makes it take on the various forms that it inscribes upon them. So in other words, the social constructions are making you become a male or a female, or a man or a woman. The social constructions are telling you that you have to make your body come out a certain way. You have to trap your body into male forms or female forms, male modes of dress or female forms of dress presentation, et cetera. You have to trap your body because of the social constructions of gender around you. Do you see it? Do you get it? So the soul, the spiritual soul of the whole world about gender and sex and sexuality is forcing inscribing upon bodies how they have to be and present themselves. They're forcing them to become male or female, masculine or feminine. The soul is the plaything of the social-spiritual environment. That's like all of the people's ideas about themselves in each other in a big milieu. That's the social-spiritual environment that Hegel's describing, the spirit of everything, of of all the people, of all the world together. The soul, the individual soul, is the plaything of that. It's one tiny component. It's one piece of this world soul of gender, sex, and sexuality. In other words, the social constructions of sex and sex—or around sex, gender, and sexuality— are the social, spiritual environment, and that conditions the soul. And the soul, therefore, makes you present the body and do things with your body. Don't have sex with that kind of person. Don't have carnal relations. Don't do this. Don't do that. Dress this way. Dress don't. don't. Your body gets in. You have to lift weights and get buff. Your body is inscribed upon by the social constructions and expectations of being male or female or straight or gay, etc. That's what Foucault is saying. So the soul, as Hegel lays it out, becomes the incarcerating thing that traps the body, but the body then entraps the soul that might feel otherwise. That's your double inversion, but in reverse. It's double trapment as opposed to double inversion. Queer theory is to resist this by doing the double inversion, by intentionally occupying the evacuating state that does the double inversion and attacking it hermetically from both sides in a single stroke. That's what queer theory is actually all about. That's why it's so complicated and ugly and nasty. This is a, such an important idea to Butler. She brings it back up three years later in her next most famous book, which is called Bodies That Matter. She says, considering the science of prison reform, Foucault writes, the man, quote, the man described for us whom we are to invited to free is already in himself the effect of a subjugation or sorry, a subjection much more profound than himself. A soul inhabits him and brings him to existence, which is itself a factor in the mastery of that power exercises over the body. The soul is the effect and instrument of a political anatomy. The soul is the prison of the body, end quote. So she's quoting Foucault there, talking about prison reform. So the man described for us is a prisoner. And so what he's saying there is that the prison conditions, the soul is the effect and instrument of a political anatomy. The soul is the prison of the body and this is the key. The soul is the effect and instrument of a political anatomy. This is how they think, and this is how it works. The soul is your view of yourself and others' view of you in that social spiritual space as described by Hegel's Geist, which is his hermetic formulation of reality. The social constructions, so rather than God and spirits and ghosts and everything is the spiritual realm, it's not that. It's not transcendental. It's cultural and social. That's the social spiritual space that Hegel lays out. And they create social constructions that condition man and condition his life. That's the inversion of praxis for Marx that conditions people, that conditions their ideas for for Hegel. It's a two-step process for Hegel and their ideas condition what they actually have and are in a material world. But for Marx, it's the other way around. Um, Your soul is your view of yourself Combined with how everybody else views yourself through the social constructions, and for queer theory, it's sex, gender, and sexuality that are the relevant things. That's the social spiritual space. So the social constructions of society become the prisons for the body. They force you to do your things with your body that you might not otherwise do. That in turn imprisons the individual soul that inhabits your body. Get it? It's a double imprisonment. Queer resistance defies this with that raging Gnostic motivation to throw off the prison of being, and it uses hermetic, transformational, dialectical, deconstructive methodology. Queer liberation means escaping the realm of the social spiritual suffering by rendering it nonsensical. In other words, if we were Buddhists, we'd say escaping the, the realm of samsara by enlightening ourselves to queer oppositionality and rendering, therefore, the entire system of suffering nonsensical. Rather than Non attachment to overcome suffering, it's now that uh, suffering is nonsense, so there is no suffering. But the suffering is being imposed into a body and or being in a body that has a social construction and assignment of sex laid upon it or inscribed upon it. That's what queer theory is actually saying. Foucault's words it would be wrong to say that the soul is an illusion or an ideological effect, on the contrary, it exists as a reality. It is produced and permanently around, on, within the body by the functioning of a power that is exercised on those that are punished. So Foucault here is saying that the soul is produced by the demiurgic power of society, whatever the demiurge happens to be. He's literally talking about prisons, which are literally carceral, but these constructions of sex, gender, sexuality, etc. are also something he has in mind. And through the relentless punishments you experience, microaggressions, discrimination, whatever, norms, expectations, getting called a pervert, and so on. Through the relentless punishments visited upon, visited upon you in that prison, your soul is actually formed. So your soul uh, ends up imprisoning the body, and then you're imprisoned within that. In this case, in the queer Gnostic case, it's normalcy that has that power, the idea that there are normal things, and people outside of that are abnormal or perverted or whatever. And so the people who are normal and who get to define normal enforce that, and they act as the demiurge. That's who you have to reject and rebel against, because they're punishing everybody who's not within their range of normal kind of constantly. In fact, Judith Butler referred to the result of this situation as a violence of categorization. Society, with its norms and expectations, its social constructions of sex, gender, and sexuality, categorizes people. They're male, they're female, they're gay, they're straight, they're bi, they're masculine, they're feminine, and so on. And that does a violence to them on the level of their soul because it limits their potentialities of being. If you're a girl, you have to be girly. If you're a boy, you have to be boyish. If you're a man, you have to be manly. If you're a woman, you have to be feminine. And, you know, butch, lesbian, Judith Butler didn't like that so much. So when there's a mismatch, that's a violence being done to you. And when there is no mismatch, there's a violence being done to you because it's forcing you to conform so that you don't even know if there's a mismatch. And the locking of a person into a particular path of becoming, woman, man, straight, gay, whatever. They don't have free, liberated potentialities of being. They have to become what they think they are. Foucault is saying that that system of punishments is actually what defines their soul, which means that the soul is socially constructed and it's socially constructed on other people's terms. It is the social, spiritual realm that we've been discussing. So the goal is going to be, the gnosis is going to be to liberate your soul from the construction, it is to escape. The demonic demiurge and understand yourself on your own terms, your own free, liberated self-knowledge. Your soul should be who you see yourself as, not who you have to see yourself as on normal people's terms, which you might have internalized unjustly through relentless social conditioning and don't even realize, hence needing a queer awakening or a queer initiation. And it gets defined in terms of how you get punished for failing to conform to normalcy. So Gnosticism, if we were to see it as queer Gnosticism, would say, knowing all of this offers a glimpse at salvation, and in this case, through opposition, and that's why queer theory is queer Gnosticism. In Bodies That Matter, Butler kind of expands on this. She says, we can understand Foucault's references to the soul as an implicit reworking of the Aristotelian formula. Foucault argues in Discipline and Punish that the soul becomes a normative, or sorry, yeah, a normative and normalizing ideal according to which the body is trained, shaped, cultivated, and invested. There's a lot of words to say, the same thing I just said, in more words. It is a historically specific imaginary ideal under which the body is effectively materialized. Like I said, power operates, Foucault, in the construction of the very materiality of the subject, in the principle which simultaneously forms and regulates the subject of subjectivation. We don't really need that other part. Foucault refers not only to the materiality of the body of the prisoner, but the materiality of the body of the prison. See, you're doubly imprisoned. The soul, the social constructions, imprison the body, and the body then imprisons the soul. The materiality of the prison, he writes, is established to the extent that it is a vector and instrument of power. Hence, the prison is materialized to the extent it is invested with power. So the more powerful norms are, the more powerful the prison is. Or to be more grammatically accurate, there is no prison prior to its materialization. Blah, 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 Judy. Its materialization is coextensive with its investiture with power relations. Again, it's a social constructions, these power relations that are imprisoning everything then materiality is the effect and gauge of this investment. The prison comes to be only within the field of power relations. It's socially constructed Gnostic prison. But more specifically, only to the extent that it is invested or saturated with such relations, that such a saturation itself is formative of its very being. Here, the body is not an independent materiality that is invested by power relations external to it, but it is that for which materialization and investor are coextensive. So my my notes say, in other words, exactly as I was saying. I won't elaborate. Now, in Gender Trouble, she touches on the same thing. She says the figure of the interior soul, understood as, quote, within the body, is, is signified through its inscription on the body. So the interior soul within the body is signified through its inscription on the body. So it gets its meaning through what's being inscribed on the body. At that so, social constructions are inscribing what it means to be a woman on the body, for example, or straight a straight woman on the body, and then your interior soul is understood the, the thing hidden within you is in, is, is under, understood through or it gets its meaning through what's have been exp- inscripted on you by the uh, social constructions. The inversion of praxis has defined what you think you are inside. That's what she's saying. Even though its primary mode of signification is through its very absence, its potent invisibility. In other words, the real mode of signification of who you really are is that nobody knows. It's inside you. You are the only one who knows. You're the you're the arbiter, you're the expert on you. And this is how queer theory defines it connects the soul and the social spiritual realm to the body, how it connects the the noetic to the to the physical. It's inscribed socially on the body and then internalized, and that's where the significance comes in. And what makes it truly spiritual is that it's actually invisible to the body. You aren't, who you are isn't actually comprehensible in terms of your body, but it's signified on your body because the social constructions tell you how to present your body, and then that signifies it. That's what she's saying. I know it's complicated, but it's really just the inversion of praxis using two steps. The effect of a structuring inner space is produced through the signification of a body as a vital and sacred enclosure. So it's getting pretty close to religious terminology here in the construction of a gender soul. She says, the soul is precisely what the body lacks. Hence, the body presents itself as a signifying lack. Signifying means something that gives meaning. In other words, the body is a fallen and mundane, non-spiritual aspect of being that craves a divine spiritual element to fill it. This is Gnosticism. She says, that lack, which is the body, signifies the soul, gives meaning to the soul, as that which cannot show. Who you are cannot show. And the the lack of the soul in the body is what signifies that. So the body, in some sense, is preventing your gender soul from being able to be truly and fully understood and expressed, even maybe to yourself. She says, in this sense, then, the soul is a surface signification that contests and displaces the inner outer distinction itself, a figure of interior psychic space inscribed on the body as a social signification that perpetually renounces itself as such. So the soul is social, spiritual, and your possible, possibly liberated true soul that is who you are is not that. That just shows in reflection on a surface signification through the body, because who you think you are and have to be gets inscribed on you by that social spiritual environment that you internalize. And then you perform that so that it seems real. It becomes a false reality that you impose on yourself and impose on others by doing it. And that imprisons, that creates the social constructions that imprison other people in their bodies and imprisons everybody's souls in their bodies. So in Foucault's terms, she says the soul is not imprisoned by or within the body, as some Christian imagery would would suggest, but the soul is the prison of the body. And so what we're actually uncovering here through all of this very gobbledygook is that the spiritual or noetic realm for queer theorists is socially, actually all of the postmodern view would be this, and Marxist sort of too, but the spiritual realm is socially constructed power as understood through postmodern theory. The body isn't a prison. The body becomes a prison through the materialization or actualization of the social constructions of gender and sex and sexuality around you, the assignment of sex and thus sex and gender roles at birth, for example. So that's what materializes those social constructions materialize on the body is what she's saying and imprison the body and what it has to be. This is Gnostic reasoning. The, the social constructions become the target. The social constructions of sex, gender, and sexuality are the things that have to be destroyed. Those norms and expectations have to be destroyed. And how do you do it? By queering them. The soul, in other words, the social constructions and what they impress upon the body, in the, kind of the world soul, imprisons the body. And thus the body materializes as a prison for the true spiritual being inside. That's who you really are. Not because of the body, but because of society. That's the key. The body isn't the thing imprisoning you. The social constructions that tell the body what it has to be are what imprison you as a spiritual being. So it's spiritual imprisonment of your spirit using your body as a mediator through inscribing certain beliefs and images and practices and performances, et cetera, onto it. That's what's going on with Judith Butler interpreting Foucault. Elaborating on this, I'm sure we're wanting to hear more Judith Butler. The objective isn't the liberation of the spirit from the body. It's the liberation of the body from the spirit or the soul. Sorry, this isn't more Judith Butler. This was me. (laughs) I was like, wait, that makes too much sense. This is what queer theory is all about using Judith Butler and Foucault. The objective is not the liberation of the spirit from the body. Okay. It's the liberation of the body from the spirit or the soul, the social spirit, the spirit, social spirit thing that I keep talking about. The socially constructed beliefs about the meaning of your body in time and space have to be rejected. Biology isn't so much to be conquered as it's to be rendered irrelevant. In other words, biological reality is an illusion of the fallen world in queer Gnosticism. Social reality is the actually real re- the imposed oppressive reality we have to live. That's lived experience. So, social reality needs to be defeated so that biological reality can be liberated into the full realm of play and transformation, the extension of imagination into embodied actuality. We might imagine Judith Butler writing. In other words, the body is but clay that you could play with and mold and remold at will if we actually had liberated spirit. In other words, if we had no social constructions of sex and gender. Your body is a mediator, therefore, to gnosis about what it really means to be and to be trapped by social constructions. And if you want to be autonomous, it's also the vehicle to knowing that. In other words, to gain gnosis. So we can understand how we can actualize ourselves through how we can can come to see ourselves as though we are seeing through the adopted mind of God by bucking the social constructions, which are the actual demiurge in the way. That's what queer theory is about. Maybe you're confused. Back up and listen to it again. Gnosis through the body, not of the body. Gnosis through what can be done with the body, the illusions of limits to its transmutability. There's your trans phenomenon. So that the true spirit or gender, soul, or whatever within can be set free from the social constructions created by the demiurge of normalcy. Those are demands that are placed upon you to script your body into the prison of the fallen, limited, mundane form that we have to have. And thus, trans people are sacred because they are literally somebody that are bucking this idea. Uh, Judy's idea, Judith Butler's idea about how all this ends up playing out is called gender performativity, and we have to dive a little bit into that briefly to understand. It all comes back to the idea of life is drag, drag is life, at the center of all of Judith Butler's thoughts. Everything we do, life is drag. Everything we do is actually drag, and drag is actually what it means to to live. That's her literal thesis. So everything we do in some sense is drag. It's performance of gender. That's what drag is, consciously or unconsciously. It's absurd, in fact. Drag is intentionally absurd, gender performance. When we are unconscious of it, We're not queer Gnostics, and we're absurdly living out our gender and continue to to contribute to the demiurgic power or social constructions of gender and sex and sexuality that constrain and imprison and do violence to people in this way, especially people who are aware that they're having violence done to them. If we are conscious of this fact that we're all performing drag all the time, we have queer Gnosis. Then we we can become queer, as Halpern put it, in an oppositional way that ambiguously queers the whole system through these double inversions. And that's what this is all about with the gender performativity. Rather than reading her on that, I'm going to just kind of describe that. I want you to imagine a dramatic play, maybe a Christmas Carol or something, Tiny Tim, you know, Uncle Scrooge or whatever. The actors can't just do whatever they want to do. They're scripted into the drama. The actors in the play have to do what the script says. And someone else wrote the lines. Someone else arranged the scenes. There's some flexibility in the performance, of course, and that's what we appreciate actors for but it's ultimately heavily constrained by the characters, the plot, the setting, and the, the director, and so many other factors. The playwright, playwright the lines, the set, the set design, the, the director, the producer, all become demiurges. Demiurgic characters over the production of the play. The actors are the people in the play, the characters in the play, and thus their performances are limited by those demiurgic forces. The, the script, the the director, et cetera, the lighting, the set. So they can act. They have to act as the characters in the set, in the setting, following the script, according to the director, but there's some flexibility in how they deliver the performance. Okay, that's performing the role, right? So you got it? When they play the roles, the actors cease being their true selves and become the characters. They're performing those roles, and through performing those roles, they for they'll for a time, become those roles. They become the character if they play it well. But we know it's a performance, and they know it's a performance. So that's acting. Imagine we didn't know. Imagine nobody knew it was a performance. That's life as drag. That's what Judith Butler is saying is going on with gender. Only the gender Gnostics realize that everything gender is performance. And thus, they don't necessarily become what they're being inscribed to become. They know they're performing, so they can ham it up. They can act. They can go crazy, even within the, right around the edges of the boundaries of the script and the director. If they didn't know that, they would have to do exactly what the script and the intention of the, the playwright, etc. indicated. Only the gender Gnostics, by being queer, can invert the system and achieve self-begetting, to achieve true agency, true autonomy, and become fully human. So she gets this idea from this other guy, J. L. Austin, who outlined the idea of performativity in the sense that when someone dons, say, professional garb and manner and so on, the person becomes their professional role—a police officer, judge, teacher, whatever. Just picture somebody at a, in a professional role. There's a little bit of a performance associated with having that role. You say certain lines by the power vested in me, or whatever. You know, there's certain presentations. You wear the robe. There's certain activities and so on. Those things communicate. I'm a cop. I'm a judge. I'm a teacher. And they become that role. The person in the uniform becomes, in in that position, becomes that role. I am a cop. I am a judge. I am a teacher. And that's the idea of performativity. Judith Butler takes that way further and into the realm of gender. Society is writing the script of the gender roles, the sex roles, the sexual roles. And they're writing it, inscribing it, she says, onto your body, onto your very being, because of the accidents of how you were born the accidents of your embodiment. Your embodiment isn't what prisons you, imprisons you in this. It is the demand to play your part according to your body. Do you get it? You're, you have to play the part assigned to you. The body is the vehicle. And because you have that body, society puts you in that part in the play. So you have to play To become male or female or straight or gay or cetera, et cetera, as society scripts those things for you and that imprisons you. And so you become your role as you perform it. You are a man, you are a woman, you are straight, you are a gay, right? That's what she's saying is, is, is how society works. The demiurgic power of normalcy forces you to play the role. And then just like a cop, he puts on his uniform and he becomes a jackass or whatever, a tough guy. He becomes a role. And when people say, well, what do you do? He says, I am a cop. And he thinks and he speaks and he adopts a language and he adopts a manner. Same thing with sex and gender. You adot, you're adopt. you told you have to act and be a certain way to be that thing, to signify that thing, to tell people you're that thing. It gets inscribed on your body by the expectations of what it means to be that thing, and then you, be, you accept it, and you become that. Or you wake up, and you become a gender-fucking queer. That's a technical term, by the way, in their literature, gender-fucking. Somebody who's intentionally fucking with gender, that's what it means. I didn't swear, actually, that's a technical term but you become these things. You get to pick, just like with Simone de Beauvoir. Are you going to become a woman on patriarchal male terms as an object to men, or are you going to become a woman as a woman? Same thing. And by becoming those things, you reify the spirit or oppose the spirit in that social spiritual way, the social constructions that define the role in the first place. So either you perpetuate the uh, carceral cycle, the demiurge, It's continued through you. The demiurgic power flows through you and is enforced by you just by how you be, by you accepting it, or you decide to queer it, to reject it. Those are your choices. That's what queer theory is about. And that's why they value these stupid transgressive performances all the time, like a black lesbian Velma in Scooby-Doo. It paints a picture that there's so much more that one could be than the stupid demiurgic playwrights actually wrote. This is why everything has to be queered. This is why trans people are sacred, because everything must transgress the script that was written by the demiurge, the demon of normalcy in society that has to be destroyed to set people free. That's their liberation. And gender trouble... Judith Butler explains some more. She says, Where feminist analysis takes the category of sex and thus, according to him, the binary restriction on gender as its point of departure, Foucault understands his own project to be an inquiry into how the category of sex and sexual difference are constructed within discourse and how we talk about things as necessary features of bodily identity. The juridical model of law which structures the feminist emancipatory model presumes, in his view that the subject of emancipation, the, quote, sexed body, in some sense, is not itself in need of critical deconstruction. There's no problem with the body. It's the social constructions that define the body. That's the problem. As Foucault remarks about some humanist efforts at prison reform, the criminal subject who gets emancipated may be even more deeply shackled than the humanist originally thought. To be sexed for Foucault is to be subjected to a set of social regulations. See, once you have a sex, you get social regulations on what it means to be that sex. It's being inscribed onto your body. To have the law that directs those regulations reside both as the formative principle of one's sex, gender, pleasures, and desires, and as the hermeneutical principle of self-interpretation. The hermeneutic principle, Hermes hermetic principle of self-interpretation, right? Self-begetting. That's where you're actually supposed to get. But you're being held back from your self-begetting by the social constructions imposing a prison on you, the soul imprisoning the body. The category of sex is thus inevitably regulative in any analysis which makes that category presuppositional uncritically, so if you presuppose sex means something, any analysis that makes that category presuppositional uncritically extends and further legitimizes that regulatively, regulative strategy as a power knowledge regime. And right there, ladies and gentlemen, in all those fancy pants words is why the feminists, the gender-critical feminists, can't stop queer theory. They accept that hermeneutic principle of self-interpretation in genders being a social construct. And thus, once you accept sex as a category, it is inherently, inevitably regulative. And so if you accept it uncritically, you've already accepted the the regime that's scripting bodies and imprisoning them. And what this results in is that queer theory is an awakening, awakening to an explicitly hermetic transformative program that starts with and is motivated by understanding your queer gnostic view of yourself in terms of sex gender sexuality and life with those things her language is tough but judith butler actually kind of makes it clear the social constructions are the target so again as above so below as below so above principle from hermeticism of, of correspondence you are below so you change yourself that's what i said earlier You change yourself, and that's as below, and you force society to accept you. So as below, so above. So when society accepts you, when you force them to accept you through moral extortion rackets and blackmail, bullying, and threatening to kill yourself or whatever bullshit you pull off, you change yourself, and then you force society to accept you, and when it does, you've changed the inscribing uh, social constructions that will now inscribe on bodies differently. So that was praxis, your activism. Now the inversion of praxis goes the other way. This is hermetic principles at work. This is ritual magic. So now the social constructions change. So as above, we have a new view of sex, gender, and sexuality that's liberated of the previous constraints that will inscribe differently on bodies, and they'll be more liberated. So people down below become trans. Trans becomes real when people accept that trans is real and reify that trans is real. You never finish transition literally, no matter how many surgeries, no matter how many hormones, no matter how many puberty blockers, no matter how much sterilization, damage, mutilation, whatever you do to yourself, you will never, ever change sex. It is not possible, but that doesn't matter. Your goal isn't to change sex. The body doesn't matter. Your goal is to change society so that it accepts that you transitioned. And if everybody lies to themselves and believes that you transitioned, you did. So transition completes not through more interventions, but by forcing society to affirm you, which is why you must not go with their demands for affirmation. It's not a matter of kindness or cruelty. So just one more from Butler because it Echoes back to Gail Rubin, who I'm not going to touch on beyond this, just to point out that it did. We did the three-part podcast here before on thinking sex. You can look up Gail Rubin, G-A-Y-L-E Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. Um, she said that in 1984 in thinking sex, something very similar. But here's what B- Butler says: one last kind of section. A radical theory of sex, that's what, what Rubin was calling for too, must identify and this is what Halpern ended up calling queer theory, or actually Teresa De Loretis did, and then and um Halpern described, a radical theory of sex must identify, describe, explain, and denounce erotic injustice and sexual oppression. Such a theory needs refined conceptual tools which can grasp the subject and hold it in view. It must build rich descriptions of sexuality as it exists in society and history. There's your your social spiritual realm, by the way. That's what spiritual means in the modern context following Hegel. It requires a convincing, critical language that can convey the barbarity of sexual persecution. So in other words, what she's saying is we're going to have queer Gnosticism, and that's what queer theory or the radical theory of sex is going to be. She says several persistent features of thought about sex inhibit the development of such a theory. Of course they do, because the demiurge isn't going to let you just break free of the prison. These assumptions are so pervasive in Western culture that they are rarely questioned. That's why you need critical, Right. Thus, they tend to reappear in different political contexts, acquiring new rhetorical expressions but reproducing fundamental axioms. And what she's going to do is now is describe some or one of the powers of the normalcy, demiurge, as it were, and uh, particular sexual essentialism, which is the only one we're going to talk about. One such axiom, she says, is essential, sexual essentialism, the idea that sex is a natural force that exists prior to social life and shapes institutions, so that sex belongs to nature is going to get obliterated. That's one of the things that's holding back a radical theory of sex, a uh, queer Gnosticism. So nature is the basis for concepts about sex. That's the thing that has to get brought to accusation, like satanic accusation, like the accuser, right? Judith Butler is in that role. So just remember, the, the Gnostic demiurge is the artisan, the creator. Not just He didn't just imprison man. He created the world to imprison man. He created nature as man's prison. And so uh, he did so specifically to be that prison for the spirit that man truly is. And he believes that man should be locked inside. That's the evil demiurge. Judy doesn't believe in that specifically. She believes in the social constructions of sex, gender, etc., trapping what you are in terms of who you really think you are. And the vehicle here is sexual essentialism, that you believe that sex precedes social forces. Sex is before social forces, and there's something essential about being male or female, sexual essentialism. She says sexual essentialism is embedded in the folk wisdoms of Western societies, she's trying to paint it as backwards, which considers sex to be eternally unchanging, asocial, transhistorical. In other words, they apply to everybody, all the time, everywhere, in are universal to humanity, and they don't change. So, here again, she's locating sex essentialism in humanity's wrong beliefs about nature as she sees it and what nature implies. In other words, she's treating nature the same way that the Gnostics treated uh, nature as the creation of evil demiurgic forces. What she's actually saying is that biological science is actually downstream from these same social forces. it's not, so, so when somebody says that they're a biologist and they understand science, they're completely discredited already in queer theory, because what they're saying is I've bought into the system and I'm using these tools that I consider to be scientific to reassert the system. Because man is his own demiurge in modern and postmodern Gnosticism through that social spiritual formulation, the sociological social spiritual formulation articulated by Rousseau and codified by Hegel. She bra- she drags medical science into this, so you're not going to get her that way. Dominated, she says, for over a century by medicine, psychiatry, and psychology, the academic study of sex has reproduced essentialism. So she's saying that there is nothing essential to your sex. That's not where it comes from. It doesn't come from your body. It comes from society telling your body what it has to be. And we got it all backwards And medicine, psychiatry, psychology, all back it up. All the so-called sciences that claim to study nature are just power-laden tools. This is postmodern 101 that the, the people who have access to power use to justify their claims. I say it's postmodern 101, but Marx did it too. There's, you know, the real science and the fake science. There's Soviet science for Lenin, and then there's bourgeois science, right? It's the same thing. And the claim to scientific authority is just a claim to be able to maintain power, and they claim that they are seeing through that lie. The powerful construct science to serve the interests of the powerful, and therefore it's actually not science, it's actually politics by other means. Truth is not a real thing here. There's only strategy and power. What people call truth is only a function of power, and that power is wittingly or unwittingly demiurgic, carceral and desiring control over that which it sees as inferior in the other, that which is external to itself. In other words, in a sense, if you were to combine Gnosticism and Hermeticism, the Hermetic God creates the material world in order to know itself, but then it doesn't want to know itself. So it represses that in some sense. It's a, it's a ham-fisted thing I just did, but it's kind of what it's like. She says, these fields classify sex as a property of individuals. Mm, it's a social property, folks. She says it may reside in their hormones or their psyches. It may be construed as psychological or phy- uh, physiological or psychological. But within these ethno-scientific categories, sexuality has no history and no significant social determinants. See, you're saying you're wrong. It's, it's a social phenomenon. And then she Cites Foucault as the person who breaks us free of that. Michel Foucault's The History of Sexuality from 1978 has been the most influential and emblematic text of this new scholarship on sex. So again, we have Foucault named as the grand wizard who's breaking us free of the prison of being with his queer Gnosticism, which is being referred to as, quote, the new scholarship on sex. Scholarship means scholars have the secret knowledge that's higher than the boring scientific truth. Foucault, she says, criticizes the traditional understanding of sexuality as a natural libido yearning to break free of social constraint. He argues that desires are not pre-existing biological entities—you're not born that way, kids—but rather— that they are constituted in the course of historically specific social practices. And this is where I, we're almost done with Judith Butler. But look, this is the, again, this is the modernist and postmodernist Gnostic view of that social spiritual realm. The progression of, quote, historically specific social practices, that's the key. And that includes through the revolutions that transform and sublate them over time. That's histori- history progressing through the clash of opposites, through the hermetic process. Queer consciousness then includes the idea that sex and the underlying desires are only comprehensible as a social spiritual phenomenon that are subject to dialectical evolution through hermetic alchemy, people discovering the greater higher truth through the dialectical process by removing distinctions. They are something that is becoming, progressing toward what it always should have been, which is completely free and without any clarifying distinctions. They are thus Cut free of the connection to physical reality entirely. And queer gnosis is coming to understand this belief. You get your queer gnosis by understanding biology doesn't matter to who you actually are, just like you see in, on the ground. Furthermore, queer gnosis is realizing yourself to be a historical agent. That's so important. With Marxism, part of adopting a critical consciousness is awakening to the fact that you are a historical agent who changes history. So you are a being in queer theory who is a sexual subject, which is to say someone who can and does participate in the process of those social and historical transformations of sex and sexuality as they unfold. In other words, you can, by being oppositional and queer, you can change the social constructions around sex and that are going to get inscribed on bodies and so on. The true nature of that transformation is necessarily changed, so the queer orientation must be always in that doubly inverting position of refusal to conform to the current historical social practices around sex, gender, and sexuality. It is to abandon any concept of biological essence at all and to resist the imposition or inscribing of any social expectation, regardless of where it comes from, on one's being by society, including through scientific scripting. That's what queer theory is all about. That's why it's queer Gnosticism using hermetic means. Her last words from Judy, I think, yeah. The new scholarship on sexual behavior has given sex a history In other words, framed it in terms of Hegel's reappropriation of hermeticism and created a constructivist alternative to sexual essentialism. It's created an entirely new gnosis about sex and sexual behavior. Underlying this body of work is an assumption that sexuality is constituted in society and history, not biologically ordained. That's enough Judith Butler for a while. So one of the ways all of this manifests obviously is in the transgender cult or transmutilation cult, whatever we want to call it, which is a subcult of queer Gnosticism. In fact, that's probably the most specific and overt version of the queer Gnostic Hermetic cult. That's why I used it as an example earlier. In transition, you are self-begetting quite literally, you are awakening that there's a difference between you and your outside appearance and what's being imposed and inscripted on your body by social constructions, and you decide to change your gender in order to begin the process of forcing society to accept and affirm that and transform the world through the hermetic principle of correspondence. One of the leading lights of the theory behind the transgender phenomenon is Judith slash Jack Halberstam, goes kind of by both. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this weirdo, but there is there is a book of some value. I'll read very quickly two pieces from it by Halberstam on the subject of transgender as defined in terms of queer time and queer place. Judith or Jack Halberstam's book, In a Queer Time and Place, Transgender Bodies, Subcultural Lives from 2005, is mostly a useless media studies book. It's talking extensively about films, books, shows, etc. that Judith Jack is pissed off about and trying to use as a, a lever to do queer Gnostic criticism but here's two pieces first one is is in indicative of what i'm talking about the second one is profound <clears throat> she says he she I don't know. Hal says, Throughout this book, I return to the transgender body as a contradictory site in postmodernism. The gender-ambiguous individual today represents a very different set of assumptions about gender than the gender-inverted subject of the early 20th century. And as a model of gender inversion recedes into anachronism, the transgender body has emerged as futurity itself— a kind of heroic fulfillment of postmodern promises of gender flexibility. So if we see postmodern promises as this hermetic space within that kind of social, spiritual realm, then you get this idea that the transgender body is the heroic fulfillment of postmodern promises of gender flexibility, and thus you see why trans people are sacred. That's not a very big point, but it's, it's in there. So it's in their, their literature. Much later in the book, there's a kind of a weirder, deeper point I'll touch on also, but I'll read this little part. The link between transgenderism and postmodernism has emerged in a number of late 20th century philosophies of embodiment from Judith Butler's Gender Trouble to Dom- John Baudrillard's essay Transsexuality to Rita Felsky's Transsexuality, Postmodernism, and the Death of History. Butler takes the transgender subject seriously and uses transgenderism to represent the contradictions of being, specifically gendered being, in postmodernism. So everything Judith Butler just laid out is kind of put to a power point in trans, is what is being said here. Baudrillard, on the other hand, uses transsexuality and by implication transgenderism as simply a metaphor for the unlocatability of the body. Don't care about that. For Baudrillard, this is what I care about. For Baudrillard, no one actually inhabits transgender subjectivity. Rather, transgenderism represents the subject floating free of the body in cyberspace. Now, here's where it gets kind of wacky. We talked about those seven levels of the of the begotten world that you have to ascend through to get to the self-begotten plane. Here we go. What do they look like? What are they? Actually, we can name them. The lowest is mineral. This is the begotten world. The minerals are on the lowest spiritual level. Above them is the vegetable. Above them is the animal. And then at level four, right in the middle, is human. The human. We're trying to awaken human. But above that is the ethereal. The ethereal, where the body doesn't really matter anymore. It's the social environment, or cyberspace, which you plug into with an ethernet cable. And you can live in the metaverse and have your own avatar, be whoever you want today. You can fake and pretend and build out your little body. And you can go on World of Warcraft and play as a big-boobed, redheaded headed flamethrower, uh, wizard, or whatever you want to do, okay, as, as, as a boy. And do whatever you want to do with that. So this is the, and then beyond, beyond the etheric, though, and that's what I think is actually being described here. Transgenderism represents the subject floating free of the body in the ethereal realm. It's the next level of Of advancement in this kind of psycho-spiritual hermetic development. Above that is the astral where the body is completely irrelevant, completely irrelevant. That would be uploading your consciousness or whatever. And then the top level is spirit. And when you attain the level of spirit, you fight the final demon that you are not actually separate from anything, which is what's in the Poimandris. Then you can ascend to the eighth plane and truly self-beget. So Halberstam writing in 2005 indicates the subcultural lives and thus queer place of trans people, transgender people, and it's kind of a closet. Obviously, that's not the case now. Trans is out. It's everywhere, but they're still going to claim that it's in a closet. It's also kind of a big problem, not just for us but also for them it's wrecking them actually it's a problem for everybody the closet though is a big piece here and that's where we're going to go next and it's a key metaphor for the entire thing of queer Gnosticism because it's the name given to the queer prison of being is the closet you're in the closet come out of the closet coming out party it's also therefore the crucible in which being in prison can be discovered and queer Gnosis can be awakened so the closet is where queer Gnosis can be triggered through these acts of initiation so to this effect, in 1995, one of the most important books in queer theory was ever written. It was published by Eve Kosovsky, I always say Ron wrong, Kosovsky Sedgwick. It's called The Epistemology of the Closet, which has a blatantly Gnostic title. The Closet has its own pathway to higher or esoteric knowing that's inaccessible to people who aren't forced to live in the closet. So you, again, we have Gnostic motivation behind the entire queer Gnostic phenomenon. It's not what I really want to get into. The big thing I want to bring up here, though, is going to circle back around to Drag Queen Story Hour stuff as we go. And But it's the way that all I'm going to talk about out of Sedgwick is her application of the concept of binaries, that othering thing that we talked about with Beauvoir. We're going to come back to that in a big way because it's a big theme. It's, in fact, kind of the whole structuring theme throughout the book, although she says that she takes Foucault as axiomatic as well. But following Beauvoir, Halpern, and Butler, we now have a sense of what binaries are all about. They're sites for the hermetic principle of polarity in the hermetic alchemy, and they are the place where you realize through subordination in the in the subordinate position in the binary, the Gnostic impulse to want to to, to fight to break free, to be liberated. So in other words, they become the Gnostic motivation is located on the subordinate position in the binary. That's why they're obsessed with binaries. And ending destroying the binary is the hermetic idea of the principle of polarity that there are no opposites. Opposites are illusions. Things are the same in kind and different in degree. And so that's why this is all hermetic magic. So in Epistemology of the Closet from 95, Cedric um I find this book difficult. Uh, it's it's she is a queer feminist literary critic in the 80s and 90s, which means all of her writing is virtually insufferable. It takes a few of her favorite books, like Billy Budd and all this, and just talks about how everything is secretly gay and all of it, uh, and everything's explained through novels, which makes it very hard to pull out explanatory or evocative pieces that you don't have to explain a whole bunch because you have to explain how the plot of Billy Bud or something is is applicable to get people to understand it. So there's no short way to present a lot of her work. So I've clipped pretty, pretty uh, narrowly, and I'm not covering very much of this epistemology of the closet. When I first read it, though, I thought the introduction and first chapter were the most thoroughly. um, And the first chapter, by the way, is a essay called The Epistemology of the Closet that inspired the book a couple of years earlier. Um, I thought it was one of the most thoroughly Gnostic things I'd ever read. Uh, It was very obvious to me. I just wanted to read it to you and say, look, it's narcissism, case closed. Um, But she starts out with a long introduction. It's actually like a third of the length of the book is this pretentious introduction she writes that she calls titles axiomatic, stupid literary people. Um, She says, furthermore, in accord with Foucault's demonstration, whose results I will take to be axiomatic, that modern Western culture. So in other words, she's just going to say whatever Foucault said, that's correct. Just like whatever St. Augustine said, that's correct. Or whatever Thomas Aquinas said, that's correct. It's axiomatic to our belief structure from here on out, Um, which is an odd thing to do in what should be uh, scholarship, not religion, except that this really is religion, but whose results I will take to be axiomatic. that modern Western culture has placed what it calls sexuality in a more and more distinctively privileged relation to our most prized constructs of individuality. Uh, Sorry, individual identity, truth, and knowledge. It becomes truer and truer that the language of sexuality not only intersects with, but transforms the other languages and relations by which we know. So she's going to say that sexuality is kind of central to our entire experience. What a big shock. The critical race theory that race is central to our entire experience. What she's literally saying is that sexuality becomes a site of knowing. In other words, something with Gnostic potential. And the book is called The Epistemology of the Closet, Right? So the, being in the closet gives you secret knowledge, secret self knowledge about what it means to be gay and subordinated in society, for example. And then she brings up a hermetic point that this dialectical dynamism, the principal polarity, the binaries. But she says one main strand of argument in this book is deconstructive in a fairly specific sense. She's very Derridean actually here, rather than Foucauldian, but that's neither here nor there. The analytic move it makes is to demonstrate that the categories presented in a culture as symmetrical binary oppositions, heterosexual, homosexual, in this case, actually subsist in a more unsettled and dynamic tacit relation according to which first term B is not symmetrical with but is subordinated to term A. In other words, heterosexual is better than homosexual is an implicit assumption, is what she's saying. But second, the ontologically valorized term A actually depends for its meaning on the simultaneous subsumption of the exclusion term B. So that sounds really complicated, but what she's saying is you can't comprehend the concept of heterosexual without understanding the concept of homosexual as its opposition. You can't understand the concept of man without understanding that it's different from women. Otherwise, we'd all just be people, right? Or we'd all just be sexual. You have to have the lesser thing, the subordinated identity, to understand the the dominating. this is the master-slave dialectic, or the what's it called, bondsman, whatever. It's got a name that doesn't piss people off for politically correct reasons. It's The master-slave dialectic is laid out not just by Hegel and famously Nietzsche, but also uh, in Genealogy of mor- Morals. But very early on in the uh, the writing of Rousseau, uh, but. Where, where where the dialectic was being played out between man's fundamental nature. He was more about savages and civilized. But it becomes very clearly that the the master can't know what's wrong in the slave's life because he's the master. But the slave knows exactly how the master works, and he knows what's wrong in his life. So the undermined thing gains special secret knowledge. This is the same as in Marx, though. He said that suffering as... Uh, the oppression, uh, systemic oppression, is what gives you knowledge of systemic oppression that enge- uh, awakens you to class consciousness to be able to become a historical subject to throw it off. So you have the binaries aren't neutral. You have a better term and a worse term. And in fact, the one that both terms gain their meaning from the other term. You're hearing the principle of polarity expressed is what you're hearing. She says, and third, the question of priority between the supposed central and supposed marginal category of each dyad is irresolvably unstable, an instability caused by the fact that the term B, that's the inferior, is constituted at once, uh, as at once internal and external to term A. So she's just expressing the... Uh, the the principle of polarity. Right? It's, it's literally the principle of polarity from uh, from Hermeticism, but now it has a power dynamic added into it. It's now got a critical element added into it, a moral upside and a moral downside of oppression in this case. So it's actually also a reformulation or restatement of the Beauvoir, uh, Halperin, Butler, queer alchemy idea that the thing that's in the subordinated position has to try to define itself absent the thing above it, but neither one can define themselves that way. So then she obsesses about these binaries. I'm just pointing out that this is this is hermetic though. Um, she gets into these binaries and we see a lot more of the queer hermetic magic. I'm not actually focusing on the Gnostic side, even though that's what the epistemology of the closet is. The Gnosis, it tells you from what she was saying. She says, to, to understand these conceptual relations as irresolvably unstable is not, however, to understand them as ineffectious or inefficacious Sorry, or innocuous. It is at least premature when Roland Barthes prophesies that, quote, once the paradigm is blurred, utopia begins. Did you hear that? When the paradigm is blurred, the constrictions aren't there anymore. So utopia begins the second the blurring begins. That's why they blur boundaries. Meaning sex Sorry, meaning and sex become the objects of free play at the heart of which the polysemic forms and the sensual practices liberated from the binary prison, the binary prison, will achieve a state of infinite expansion, end quote. And so you get that sense of those Eleusinian mysteries back here again, but they're not that simple as what she's saying. Utopia, or the road to higher culture through the right love of boys, only begins with the blurring of boundaries, when the social, spiritual paradigm defining and defined by those boundaries starts to break down and blur. Sedgwick says that it's only the very, very start. You don't have utopia. It's only utopia very, very begins. She says we have to be, it's premature when he prophesies that it'll actually happen. You have to do something. In fact, you have to be hermetic. The Gnostic part is only the motivation. You have to be hermetic. Realizing that you're in the binary prison doesn't get you out of it. It's just the flash of Gnostic insight that lets you start to seek and escape. It's the hermetic process of deconstruction that's going to get you out of it. That's what she's actually going to contend. She says to the contrary, in fact, she's much more pessimistic than that, though. She says to the contrary, a deconstructive understanding of these binarisms makes it possible to identify them as sites that are are peculiarly densely charged with lasting potentials for powerful manipulation. Both ways by that, by the way through precisely the mechanisms of self-contradictory definition or more succinctly the double bind nor is it a de- is a deconstructive analysis of such a definitional of de- i ruined that let's start again nor is such a deconstructive analysis of such definitional knots however necessary at all sufficient to disable them quite the opposite. I would suggest that an understanding of their irresolvable instability has been continually available and has continually lent discursive authority to anti-gay as well as anti-cultural forces of this century. Now, before I elaborate on that more explicitly, what is she talking about here? I'm going to get into that. Um, When she's saying that these binaries are inherently unstable like this and they inherently can't resolve and it's too complicated to just blur the boundaries like this, what she's actually suggesting is that they all are going to have to be understood in terms of hermetic triads. There's there's this other understanding that's going to have to be there in order to make sense of it. Um, being and nothing have a hermetic triad and becoming, and that's kind of the the, the central hermetic thing. So here are these binaries, being and nothing, the opposites always there's an element of becoming between them. And the queer process of coming out of the closet is a process of becoming out of the closet. It's not, you don't come out of the closet, you become over time out of the closet. You become more and more queer by more becoming more and more oppositional to these things. What was she talking about specifically about this double bind? She's talking about the way that being in the closet works out as a trap, but coming out of the closet works out Badly for you, too. She spends a lot of time talking about that in this chapter, actually. And this part of the introduction, I should say. So you're double bound when you're in the closet. You're not just bound. You're double bound. Sounds kind of like Judith Butler, right? But the thing is, it's a lot different. What she's saying is you're being silenced being in the closet. You can't be who you really are. You're always afraid of who's going to figure out who you are and what's going to happen if they do. But if you come out and all of a sudden you're typecast or people start making awkward comments or they, some people discriminate. So if you come out, you get punished. And if you stay in, you get punished. He gives us an example of a teacher who gets found out to be gay, loses his job, and he sues. And then he doesn't get his job back for discrimination because the judge rules that had they known that he was gay when they hired him, they wouldn't have hired him. So being in the closet cut in both ways. This is the kind of examples that she gives. So it's not merely enough in queer theory to realize that you're in a prison of being is what's actually going on here through regulated sex and sexuality and norms around those. It's that you're you're in one essentially inextricably. You're kind of permanently stuck. It's a very pessimistic view in queer theory, which is a huge thing for Butler too, who believes that you can't really escape this prison of being. You can't really end the regimes of of normalcy being imposed uh, they're too powerful. They're they're always going to recreate themselves in new ways. That's a huge theme. And so, what well, all you can do is what Judith Butler literally said about drag: is you can mock them, which dissolves but doesn't end their power. And you do that through what Butler called the politics of parody. So you make fun of you paradise, you you paradise. you 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 do drag. And that's why the deconstructive magic is needed. Gnosticism is merely the queer Gnosticism is merely the motivation to take action, but it isn't salvific, uh, salvific. You can't save yourself without the method behind it. So you have to apply Hermetic alchemy here in the pessimistic, negative postmodern deconstructive form through blurring, distinction, erasing, negative dialectical processes, that becomes a method. Now, I don't think that that's actually stuck. I think that that was the case probably in the 90s when they were writing this stuff. But my God, they've switched gears now, and now they are definitely asserting it the other way. They're definitely doing the other thing. They're going full blast, affirm, 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 the full-blown as-below-so-above program is now happening. So they've actually kind of started to reverse these by actually, I think they have reversed many of these binaries and, uh, they're taking full advantage of the power that they've seized. And so one more from Sedgwick to really bring us home. And then we'll, we'll go back to the drag queen story hour and call it, uh, She wants to identify what the key sites for the queer hermetic magic are. What are these binaries that matter so much? She says, in arguing that homo-heterosexual definition has been a presiding master term of the past century, one that has the same primary importance for all modern Western identity and social organization, not merely for homosexual identity and culture, as do the more traditionally visible cruxes of gender, class, and race, I'll argue that the now chronic modern crisis of homo-slash-heterosexual definition has affected our culture through its ineffaceable marking, particularly, or particularly of the categories—and here they are—secrecy versus disclosure. That's very closety, right? So these are the sites where you're going to have the knowledge going on. Knowledge versus ignorance. Public versus Private. Do th- that's, I think, what the one thing they don't understand. So they're always trying to blur public versus private. Bring your whole self to work. Do fetish at work. Do fetish in front of kids. Bring dragon. Of- no, it could be adult versus child as well, there. Masculine versus feminine. Majority versus minority. And then the big one. Innocence versus initiation. I'm going to come back to that. Natural versus artificial, new versus old, discipline versus terrorism, canonic versus non canonic, wholeness versus decadence, urbane versus provincial, domestic versus foreign, health versus illness, same versus different active versus passive, in slash out, cognition slash paranoia, art slash kitsch, utopia slash apocalypse, sincerity slash sentimentality, and voluntarity versus addiction. And she goes through those all in the rest of the book, which is horrific. Um, Innocence versus initiation is a big one. She spends a lot of time on that one in the book, and that's the key here. Queer theory is wholly obsessed with the idea that people are sexually innocent and therefore trapped under the demiurgic power of normalcy until they are initiated into queer forms of being. What that means is queer praxis in schools is an initiation right for children. Queer praxis, even with adults, is an initiation right out of sexual innocence and into their mode of thinking, into their cult. It is a cult, and it's central—it's not— Innocence versus maturity is innocence versus initiation. It's being brought the secrets of the the, the Gnostic universe about what sex and sexuality are really about. And that brings us back to the Drag Queen Story Hour paper, and we'll we'll go back to where we started, add a little context, see what's going on much more clearly now with queer theory as a Gnostic phenomenon. Queer Gnosticism should be confusing as hell, I guess, for that last bit, but quite clear in its construction now. A closer look the Drag Queen Story Hour paper reads, "At knowledge production within queer and trans communities is necessary for considering educational tactics that might open possibilities toward a less violent society. Operation Drag Floyd is in play even there. Many efforts aimed at LGBTQ, no Q, sorry, LGBT inclusion have replaced one monolithic script of gender with another. See, very Butler, very Sedgwick there. Rather than engaging with how queer and trans knowledge production may invite us to re-examine the very foundations of how we teach, so that didn't sound all that terrible until you realized how deeply Halperian or Foucauldian or Butlerian that is, and their refusal to comply with the dominant paradigm, there's Halperin's definition of queer, queer and trans communities reach toward a different kind of world. It's transformative. It's hermetic. It's alchemy. Jose Esteban Munoz argued in his 2009 book, Cruising Utopia, that queerness is imagination itself, a yearning for a future not yet fully conceivable in the present. So let's read his quote one more time. It should make a lot more sense and be a lot more creepy than when I read it at the beginning. Queerness is not here yet. Queerness is an ideality. Maybe we should call it heaven or the kingdom. The kingdom is not here yet. The kingdom is an ideality. Put another way, we are not yet queer. We're not yet saved. We may never touch queerness, salvation, but we can feel it as the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. We have never been queer, saved, yet queerness, salvation, exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. The future is queerness's, heaven's, domain. Queerness, is a structuring and educated mode of desiring that allows us to see and feel beyond the quagmire of the present. The here and now is a prison house. Very Gnostic. Queer Gnosticism. Now one thing I didn't point out here is this desiring. Desire is considered kind of the root of all evil in Hermeticism. Desire is the thing you're actually trying to overcome. But here what they're saying is we have a higher level, a structuring and educated mode of desiring. We have desiring that escapes the evil of desire is what they're saying. Queer desire escapes the evil of desire in a hermetic sense. This is a hermetic religion. They're inducing your children into a hermetic religious cult using sex and sexuality at its center. Now, Here's another quote from, from the paper, and it's the last thing I'll read. Drag Queen Story Hour is, a pedagog- is pedagogical without being particularly pedantic. There are a few neat and tidy lessons, no repetitively stated objectives, no scripted curriculum aside from the text of the books read aloud. Instead, the program is based largely on improvised performance and the appeal of aesthetics. Building from Munoz, you know, 2009, which we just read, by the way, We suggest that the aesthetic dimension of drag pedagogy engages with potentiality, that which does not exist in present material form but on the horizon, rather than possibility, that which already exists in a tangible and real way. See, potentiality, becoming, transformative. This is Hermetic. And you can have a glimpse of it through the gnosis that we're trapped in something that's not that. They say, while there is a loose and practically oriented common architecture to a story hour, read a story, sing a song, rinse, repeat. The queens do very little to teach anything explicitly. There is no lesson on the meaning of gender, no worksheets on how to be kind. All that is blasé. Such activities would betray integrity to form. Instead, the queens employ a more dialogic approach to pedagogy. That's what Freire called the Gnostic cycle, by the way, in the Pedagogy of Freedom. It's Paulo Freire's dialogic model. He said it is explicitly, in his own words, repeatedly, like seven times, the Gnostic cycle. Instead, the Queens employ a more dialogic approach to pedagogy that is largely built on a captivating aesthetic that seeks to broaden the imagination. The educational philosopher Maxine Green, deeply concerned with wide awakeness of awareness of what it is to be in the world, wrote... To tap into imagination is to become able to break with what is supposedly fixed and finished, objectively and independently real. It is to see beyond the imagine- what the imaginer has called normal or common-sensible and to carve out new orders in experience. Doing so, a person may become freed to glimpse what might be, in the mind of God maybe, to form notions of what should be and what is not yet. And the same person may at the same time remain in touch with what presumably is. Or, that's the end of the quote from Green, now back to the paper, or as drag queen Nina West sang in her children's album, drag is a vacation from a boring day. Use your imagination. All you got to do is close your eyes and see who you want to be. So this is queer Gnosticism. One more time, queer theory defines a cult. Queer theory is queer Gnosticism. Queer theory is cult religion based on sex and sexuality. Instruction and gender theory or queer theory is religious instruction and religious induction. It is not okay. It should be illegal. But let's do this part again. Drag is a vacation from a boring day. Use your imagination. All you got to do is close your eyes and see who you want to be. All you got to do is use your imagination, your mind, your nose. All you have to do is awaken and see yourself as who you should or want to be or as you are. Actually, in truth, in the mind of God. That's Gnosis. You see yourself, you see a glimpse of yourself and the world as it should exist, as portrayed in the mind of God, that you believe that you have had secret knowledge of. And that secret knowledge can save you and save others. You can break free of the social conditioning that has imprisoned your body, that in turn imprisons who you are. You're imprisoned by the social construction. So, what you're going to do is praxis to transform the world. You're going to transform yourself to force the world around you to accept it, as below, so above. And when you transform the world around you, it will transform people into further acceptance and affirmation, because as above, so below. And so we transform a world into its potentialities. It all starts with seeing yourself as you believe you actually are, your true self, your unvarnished self, not the self that's been ruined and fallen and conditioned and imprisoned by the social constructions, by the demiurge. It is the, the self that is free or can be freed of those things if you knew yourself that way. And then you enter into a process of transformation. And that process of transformation is to self-beget as you perceive yourself as, within what you believe is a glimpse of yourself in the mind of God. In other words, you go from recognizing yourself as the third person in the Godhead to the self begetting second person in the Godhead through a transformative hermetic process. You force society to reify that in order to make it work because the spiritual realm that you're actually needing to transform is the social environment the, where socialization occurs. And you're going to transform society so that you can transform people by seizing the means of production of normalcy and what it means to be normal and what it means to be healthy and good and what it means to develop healthily as a human being. That's queer Gnosticism. It is a cult religion. It is a destructive cult religion. Things like Drag Queen Story Hour are dragging you into it. It's not just superficial for me to say so. It's very deep. I rushed a little bit through Butler because it's getting long. Halpern makes it very clear. But we could pick almost any text in queer theory and very quickly find these same themes. You're imprisoned in who you are by the social constructions of of society about sex, gender and sexuality or fatness or ability status or whatever else. You're imprisoned by those. They inscribe that on your body, but you can break free of what's being inscribed on your body by the society by changing your body and forcing your society to accept it. You might get fat on purpose and force society into fat acceptance because they're being mean to you. So you do moral blackmail on them to force them to you change your vibrations, your principle of vibration, to force them to accept you. And then there is no more fat phobia. Same with homophobia, with transphobia, et cetera. That's what this system is. It is a cult of trying to force society into a single unified mind that begets itself into a liberated utopia. It's a cult. The process literally involves destroying yourself in order to make society accept you as destroyed. It's extraordinarily unhealthy. It explicitly rejects reality and biology for its cult beliefs instead. So you know that there's going to be a collision with reality. Reality is going to void this or veto this eventually. It will definitely do so. So it is unambiguously a destructive cult. That believes that it knows the secret of reality and that the secret of reality is that it's actually being social. it's actually socially conditioned. There is no real reality, there's a social reality, the social spirit, and that social spirit can be transformed. And the process of transforming it is transforming yourself and forcing society to accept you. And then when society accepts you, it will accept everybody like you. And the idea of normalcy will go away, it will be abolished, it will all be over. And this is, like I said, the Gnostic impulse being executed through hermetic means around sex, gender, and sexuality. Queer theory is the doctrine of a cult. That cult should be called queer Gnosticism. It should be treated as a cult. We should not be teaching it in schools. It should be regarded as religious instruction and religious cult induction. It's a violation of the First Amendment. It's a violation of God knows how many civil rights. It is absolutely unacceptable. We need to recognize it for what it is. The people in our lives who are caught up in it, doing their pronouns, for example, that's an initiation right, by the way. You're all of a sudden suggesting that the social realm, the social spirit realm of Hegel is where sex and gender really lie. All you have to do is start changing the words. It's discursively inscripted. So all of the friends and family we have that are trapped and being damaged by this, they're pulled into a cult. It's a very unhealthy cult. The parents pushing this on their kids have Transhausen by proxy, some people are saying. It's a manifestation of the psychological disorder Munchausen's by proxy, where you gain social status by being, say, the mother of a sick child, or in this case, the mother of a trans child, or the mother of, oh my god, it's so hard for them, and I'm so supportive. I'm such a good supporter. They're terrified of the boogeyman of the gay or of the the, the socially conservative father who would reject and disown his gay son. So they affirm this crap to the point where they're destroying our kids. But the people who are getting pulled into this are being pulled into a cult. It's very hard to see reality once you're in a cult. You have the goggles on. Reality is distorted. We have to understand this. That's why I want to put this out as Gnosticism. But if you understand why queer theory is Gnosticism, because queer theory is a derivative postmodern branch of Marxist thought, you can understand why Marxism is... Gnostic. You can understand why the entire woke cult, including its sustainability arms, where the earth is the oppressed other that we have to save from itself through special knowledge of sustainability, you can see why that entire Agenda 2030 is a Gnostic cult as well. And I think queer theory is actually one of the easier ways to see the actual application of the Gnostic impulse. I'm trapped in a body because of social constructions. I didn't want to be born in this body, and I hate the way society says I have to be because of this body. And so I'm going to attack society for the crime of me being in this, for the crime of imposing upon this body who I'm supposed to be when I feel like I should be somebody else. That's the Gnostic impulse and the hermetic practice of transforming yourself to transform society, of trying to raise yourself and everybody else to the level of, the self-begetting, to realize that you are God and have the absolute authority over yourself and everybody else to transform the world and yourself and everybody according to the view you believe that you have, because you believe that your mind is not separate from the mind of God, and therefore you are God. And so, as it says on the Poimandres, you know, you've got to not delay. Now that you know this, let me actually find that real quick, and we'll close with the Poimandres again. I didn't think I was going to do this, so I don't have it at the bottom again. I don't remember where it was. Uh, The Poimandre said, you know, you can't delay um, Know how to find it very quickly F24, okay Um, Sorry, that's my uh, not very profound ending The Poimandre says it very clearly So then in due order they ascend to the Father And they surrender themselves to the powers And becoming the powers they emerged in God This is the end, the supreme good For those who have had the higher knowledge To become God Well then, with trans cult, why do you delay? Should you not, having received all, become the guide to those who are worthy, so that the human race may be saved by, in this case, drag queens, through you?